VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, August the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout in the queue on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is two, uh, pardon me, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So for many or some, at least, they'll be anxiously awaiting the Canada Summer Games to be held here in St. John's and surrounding area in 2025. Heard a great story this morning brought to us by Jeremy Eaton over at the Sieb. It was on this date in 1977 where a young, fresh-faced 17-year-old local won a gold medal in the Canada Summer Games in the 200-meter butterfly. So to hear him recount it, his name is Blair Tucker. He went on to join the national swim team in 1980. He's currently still involved with the sport. He's a swim coach in uh, Ottawa. He was back here for the first time back in the Aquarina to watch his daughter wrap up her swim career as a varsity swimmer for Memorial University. But on this date, Blair Tucker wins the gold medal in the 200-meter butterfly. Pretty great story. Okay, let's go. And on that front, every time I see a today in history regarding Michael Phelps, because I marveled at him. You know, he's one of my favorite athletes of all time. He's had a bit of a bizarre post-career as a swimmer, but it was on this day in 2008. Phelps won his seventh of eight gold medals at the Beijing Olympics when he takes the 100-meter butterfly, an Olympic record 50.58. Anyway, love Phelps. All right, uh, congratulations to the members of Team Atlantic from this province. For the uh, Team Atlantic, is the U18s. They're going to be playing in the national championships coming up in BC at Dawson Creek uh, in November, 5th to the 11th. So four players from this province to make the team, Jessica Mercer, Leah Wicks, Maria Shea, and Molly Power, all cracked the roster. Good luck and congratulations. And for people who are the big sports nuts, and I remember when I had a subscription to Sports Illustrated, couldn't wait to get it out of the mailbox, read it cover to cover every single time. First published by Time Incorporated in 1954, Sports Illustrated. For some, it was the swimsuit edition. That's all they cared about. Okay, let's get into it. So we got the numbers yesterday from Stats Canada regarding inflation. It's crept up from 2.8% in June to 3.3% in July. They point to the obvious factors that have the implication regarding the increase in inflation. Gasoline prices increased by 0.9% in July. In the same month last year, they declined by more than 9%. Then they look at some of the electricity prices across the country. A skyrocketing in the past year up 11.7%. 11.7% year over year. And of course, the complications and or the implication of some of the additional prices and taxes we're paying on things like electricity and gasoline, what have you. And we had a great conversation yesterday with Sylvain Charlebois here on the program talking about a variety of issues that lead into how the groceries are priced. So we talked about shrinkflation, shelfflation, skimpflation, and it was really interesting to look at those different factors because, by and large, most Canadians simply look at the grocery chains and their level of profits. And, of course, a lot of their profit still does come from things like pharmaceuticals and clothes and the like. But anyway, Mr. Charlebois was quite interesting as he broke it down for us, and we can get into it. But the most recent numbers regarding grocery inflation, 8.5% in the year up to July. 
down a little from 9.1, but certainly nobody but nobody feels that slight easing in food inflation. Some different areas of the grocery store, a little bit more accommodating for our budget thrifty folks. In the produce section, fresh fruits uh, see the lowest month-over-month decline since February of 2008. Really? Down 6.5%. Apparently grapes were down across the board 40% last month. But here's what's going on in some other parts of the world where they're really still struggling with food prices, just like we are here in Canada. Now, when you have government intervention in the private sector, it can indeed be troubling for many. There's a couple of countries in Europe that are trying to tackle the food issues by going directly after the manufacturers and the retailers. So France and Germany notably. So there's a big push in France to the uh, manufacturers that produce and sell some 80% of what the French eat. If they don't accommodate with price caps, they're going to see some huge fines levied. So in both countries, what they're trying to attempt, and this was attempted in this country back in the 1970s, not old enough to remember it, but apparently many experts say it was disastrous, but it's worth reconsidering a cap on some of the staples at the grocery store. For instance, if you look at bread, certain fruits, vegetables, baby formula, can the country and the government, which regardless of their political stripe, is there an opportunity there? Because you can't chip away and make it so that it's on not it's not profitable for these companies to produce what they produce. But you know, I think by and large, most Canadians be more worried about their own pocketbook than some of the profitable businesses that have thrived. For many other sectors of the economy, really got punished throughout the pandemic not so much at the store so do you think the government should consider and you know bring in the policy experts review how, what happened in the 70s but of course the market's vastly different now than it was 50 years ago so in some countries they're going to tackle it by capping the price of some of the basics anyway what do you think of that move might be interesting for a healthy discussion speaking of healthy you never know what's going to get the real uh, emotional reaction from the listener i mean i try to you know cover a bunch of bases and we'll see what latches on in your mind and hopefully your fingertips and your phone call but just overnight what started as a story where you couldn't get a timbit at tim hortons at the health sciences center has really blown up in my email inbox anyway and it's about the healthy food policy and the first phase being implemented at the health sciences center so they're going to look at what the options are the canteens the cafeterias the vending machines and the gift shops in the first phase came in fact back in june the removal of all candy sports and energy drinks and reducing the availability of deep and partially fried foods by next june all chips vitamin water soft drinks both diet and sugary sweet will be removed in the final phase which happens in june of 2025 all bars and chocolates covered items will be gone deeper partially fried food will no longer be available okay you can understand the thought of healthier options and this is not the first time government has taken this sort of step of remind folks of the so-called sugar tax in some of the beverages we consume which was a bizarre rollout confusing rollout the tax was being applied to things that we were told were exempt that's one part of the conversation but inside a hospital setting most often the healthier option will number one be more expensive and when we talk about comfort foods because in- inevitably visitors that are going to see their loved one who have been admitted to hospital if they do indeed want something that's not available in the canteen or from a vending machine they'll bring it right even if we think about healthcare professionals dealing with eating disorders, and we're going to speak about that a little later in the program this morning, 
They say quite clearly that blacklisting options is unhealthy. It's more about education, awareness, and balance. So just say, and where's the, the nutritional proof that, for instance, a muffin is better for you and has less of so-called harmful content than a donut or a timbit? So the reaction has been fast and furious in my email inbox. People just think it's a mistake because notoriously, people don't like hospital food. And so consequently, whether it be bringing in something from your favorite fast food joint, and again, look, I get the concept of eating healthy. I need to do better myself. But inside that setting, it is controversial as far as I can tell. Now, inevitably, there will be people in completely outside with this move. You know, healthy, healthy, healthy. It's a hospital. Therefore, attention health would be predictable. But it's not being very well received. That much I can tell you. If you want to talk about it, we're, also, we're going to speak with uh, Paul Toomey from the Eating Disorder Foundation. They have an official position on it. I'll let him to further elaborate on it, of course, because he's the person working in that arena. So, yeah, people not pleased with it. Looking for an update, as we watch the province go through a review of long-term care and personal care homes, hopefully they'll be able to give us some new updated numbers regarding a variety of things happening in long-term care and personal care, whether it be staffing ratios or what have you. But I've talked about these numbers in the past, and we're going to do it again because we really need some updated numbers. These are getting a little bit old and a little bit stale, but here's the last numbers we have understood, and this comes from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, about the percentage of long-term care residents that are living at least partially throughout the day in restraints. Here it is. 14.2% of long-term care residents in this province spend time daily in physical restraints, compared with the national average of 6.5%. Startling, to say the least. So the questions are, is it legitimately all about their safety and the safety of other residents? Is it about staffing shortages will lead to that decision being taken? Fair question, and we need those numbers updated. Hopefully it's been included in this review. Then they go out to talk about the numbers of residents taking antipsychotic drugs. These numbers, once again, unbelievable. In this province, 38.3 of residents, almost four out of 10, are getting these drugs. The national average, 21.9. So, when you have a loved one, and for many, it's the last option they want to explore, is being put into the home, right? Into a long-term care facility. And you can only imagine the heartbreak. Now, some families would understand it if there's a legitimate need and there's no other option but to be taking these antipsychotic drugs, no other option but to be in restraints. But for other families who have questions saying, how is this happening? When all of a sudden did my mom or dad or nan or pop became someone that required to be in restraints? So I'm hoping that those things are included in the review and some questions answered about what leads to this. And if it's a staffing shortage issue, then we've got ourselves some pretty massive problems. All right, how are we doing on the telephone there, Dave? We reached out to Yvonne Jones, the Liberal member for Labrador. Been a big investment made for connectivity in the big land, and we can talk about it. But I wonder, and I also need to know from, regardless of the federal member, about how they're reacting to the updated numbers regarding the tunnel between Labrador and the island of Newfoundland, the fixed link. It's hardly new. This has been kicked about for decades. There was work done in 2004, a formal report. Hatchell brought in in 2018 to update the numbers. 
and we've seen another update come in again. So when Hatch looked at it in 2018, they predicted that the 18-kilometer rail tunnel would cost about $1.65 billion. There was a partnership between the Canadian Infrastructure Bank with the Newfoundland government, a half million dollars to look at it and give it a further update, see whether or not we're going to proceed. Then another outfit was brought in, Arup. They say that even Hatch's numbers long back in 2018 would have ballooned to 2.8% uh, $2.8 billion simply with the impact of inflation. Now they go on to talk about what it's going to cost in their estimation. It goes all the way to $4.8 billion, take 14 years to complete versus the previous estimate of 12. They also say that they forecast a $10 million operating loss year over year huge disparity between Hatch and Arup about the estimation of the number of vehicles that would use that uh, tunnel and the rail system. So if it's still in the hands of the infrastructure bank and ministers over the years have been given a mandate letter to say to keep working towards it, you know, with the old nation building exercise, no question people in Labrador would love to see this come to pass. And I would imagine many people on the Northern Peninsula and the West Coast specifically would be more than pleased to have that level of connectivity. I wonder what those numbers, how they resonate at the Infrastructure Bank and with the federal government because they're vastly different than they were just as recently as 2018. You want to talk about it? Let's do it. Sticking with travel. This won't please many. Let's talk about it. So remember back in May of 2020, and I remember speaking to this lady. Her name is Kim Taylor. She's from Nova Scotia. She was barred from traveling to the province to attend her mother's funeral all based on the restrictions brought forward by the amendments to Bill 38, the Public Health Protection and Promotion Act. This is where, you know, there's no playbook, and I was, I, like many, were really unsure what was going to be the future regarding the pandemic and the virus. But of course, some of these measures were extremely restrictive, and in many corners were deemed to be extraordinarily harsh and overreach. So. When they said that they had the ability to d detain people in noncompliance, then she took the government to court, and at that point, the argument was that it was against her constitutional rights, including Section 6 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The ban was upheld in September of that year when the justice responsible said the ban did, did infringe on Section 6, but was protected by Section 1, which allows for reasonable exemptions to the Charter. Then... Ms. Taylor and her lawyer, Rosalind Sullivan, they want it to be heard in front of the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal has said this week that they're not going to hear it. They're not going to take the case on. They say that based on the special measure orders the government put in place in May 2020 and removed in 2022, because they're no longer in place, it makes the court case moot. I'm not so sure about that. You know, now I'm not a legal beagle, and I'm not a judge or a lawyer, and nor am I a plaintiff in this particular case, but simply because the restrictions are no longer in place, in their estimation, that means there's no need to hear it. They also go on to say that the adversarial relationship between the involved parties has ended. Another factor leads them to this decision, to not hear the case. I'm sure that'll be something that many would like to address, because there's going to be, at some point, you have to imagine, there's going to have to be a comprehensive look officially, about how everything was handled. Public health is tricky business, and it has been 
and when you listen to the social scientists, they predicted exactly what the fallout would be with mandates and restrictions and people unable to visit their loved ones in long-term care, how the virus was handled in long-term care facilities, notably Ontario and Quebec, travel restrictions, you know, Section 6 being uh, overridden by Section 1 of the Charter Rights and Freedoms. So you have to imagine there's not that's not the end of the story when we look back. Now, different provinces handled it different ways. There was lots of distinct overlap with how governments approached a lot of the unknowns early on. But if you want to take that on... We can do exactly that. Okay. Uh, last quickie on the federal front before we get to your calls. We know that the people will say, and they're not wrong, that the federal liberal government since 2015 has been ethically challenged. Several such cases have been brought before the Ethics and Conflict of uh, Interest Commissioner was then Mario Dion. Lots of findings publicly and widely reported. Now when he retired, the interim Ethics Commissioner was Martine Richard or Richard. And of course, she took that interim role on in April, but then it was understood she's the sister-in-law of Intergovernmental Affairs Dominic LeBlanc, and consequently removed from the position. But now, there's been no ethics or conflict of interest commissioner at the federal level for six months. It's the longest time since the establishment of the office period. So we know all the reviews, investigations are done in private and then publicly released conclusions. But what does this mean for what might be going on today? Establishment and understanding what, where a conflict may be, whether or not there's been an ethics breach. So how can this possibly be for six months? Now, Mario Dion is actually working with the government to try to find a replacement. There are some pretty strict parameters who, to who might be eligible. So because of the Parliament of Canada Act, the commissioner must be A, a former judge, or a former Senate ethics officer, or a former ethics commissioner, or a, a former member of the federal or provincial board, a commissioner or a tribunal who has relevant experience. So maybe a relatively slim, slim pool. In this province, we need the establishment of an ethics commissioner. You know, the commissioner of legislative standards is one important role, but we need to add to it. And the federal government, not only in their best interest, but most importantly in our best interest, has to put someone in that permanent role to deal with the potential conflicts, to identify ethics breaches, and to deal with them appropriately. Now, people will also point out, whenever there's been an ethics breach, as determined by Mario Dion, what was the fallout? Whatever happened? Where did accountability lie? How did it look? You want to take it on? Let's do it. A couple of quickies before we get to your calls. So, busy day in uh, August 16th in history. So, as I heard Geraldine Mackey say, uh, the day that Elvis died, August 16th, 1977. And one of the carry, you want to talk about the king. And on this date in 1961, Patsy Cline recorded Crazy. The ballad compo composed by Willie Nelson became one of her signature tunes and a karaoke favorite of many. And anyway, Nelson wrote the song for country singer Billy Walker. He turned it down. Patsy Cline made it uh, an immortal hit. Which leads me to, you know, is it time to establish, I know this is kind of flimsy when we talk about the big issues of the day, but a Newfoundland Labrador Music Hall of Fame, Walk of Fame, recognizing just the massive contribution that the arts, music in particular, has made to the landscape of the province. And as we've talked about in the past, it was on this date in history that the first transatlantic cable was received in heart's content from Ireland, right? Anyway, good stuff. We're on Twitter. Where VOCM Open Line follows there? Our email address is openlinefiosim.com. We're going to kick off the show this morning talking about industry, energy, and technology with the minister responsible, that's Andrew Parsons. And then we'll get the formal 
comments from the Eating Disorder Foundation about this healthy food program approach in the first phase and maybe second or third phase that's being implemented at the Health Sciences Center. And then we're talking to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Burjo Lapoil. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology. That's Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Very well, thank you. How about you? Not bad at all, brother. Not bad at all. Hard to know where to start inside your portfolio, but let's start with the oil industry and the Terra Nova being floated back out to, at some point, resume production. I know with the private companies, they'll keep their you know, their information close to the chest. But on this one, we're in for about a half a billion dollars with cash and uh, royalty relief. What do we know about the plants here? Are they going to resume production this calendar year because they backed it out of their own forecast? Well, that's the plan. I think uh, depending on which partner you talk to, uh, they have different levels of optimism. Right now, the fact that they're heading back out there is, uh, I think, ahead of schedule, actually, for where my head was. I wasn't sure if I was going to see it uh, back in 2023. Uh, the way it's looking right now, I think it is. you are going to see it recommissioned back uh, during this calendar year. Uh, I know going it is, is, you know, some complicated work that has to happen, but I do, I do think we're going to see it here. But I can't, I can't give you an exact date. I mean, I leave that to to them. But anytime during, to me, anytime during 2023 is a a, a positive step forward. Do we learn any lessons or gain any leverage when we talk about work to be done here? Because it was supposed to be in Spain for X amount of time. I think it was uh, seven months and it extended all the way. Now it's been 13 months since it's been producing or since the repairs began. So what's the takeaway? Because there's a lot of the work that we can do here. And of course, we only hold so much and so many of the cards here and so much leverage because they're the operators and they'll eventually kind of do not what they want, but they've got a lot of cards to play. So what lessons have we learned based on this? bit of a debacle with the repairs well it didn't cost us a cent no no not us take from there right i mean that if anything i think uh, you know we continue to talk about doing work here having the capacity to do it here in this case this one was lined up some time ago i don't know if they had the ability to do the work that was necessary here but i mean in fact, I think from the company's point of view, I mean, I'm sure they would do things differently. Uh, they went over to Spain to do the work. They end up, you know, spending a hell of a lot of time and money, and bringing a lot of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians over there. So, you know, we can, if anything, we got to continue to send a message when it comes to the workforce we have here to get things done on time and on budget. Uh, that shipyard, I don't think had a, you know, I don't think the reputation has uh, been enhanced from this work uh, when we talk about Navantia. But anyways, uh, I guess I should be careful. I don't want to say too much now. Next thing I'll be getting sued. But uh, what I would say is this. We're going to try to do what we can here. Uh, But again, when you have Newfoundlanders and Labradorians getting shipped over there to do the work, uh, that just goes to talk about the quality of the workforce that we have here. Let's move off to mining. Do you have a status update for us based on uh, valets want to sell maybe somewhere in the neighborhood 10% of its base metals division to a Saudi Arabian public investment fund? Does that include Long Harbor? So I don't actually have an update when it comes to that. What I would say is that the, when we talk about Valet, I mean, they continue to just – it's amazing what they're doing. Like the investments that they're making here in the province is, is massive when they talk about the mine expansion that's going to increase the, the lifespan of the, the mine. That's huge. We're talking billions of dollars here. Uh, but I haven't heard anything about the Saudi Arabian part. That's not something that uh, has been brought to my attention. I mean, I don't know if you have more detail on that. It's not something that I'm hearing a lot about, to be honest with you. I read it in the Wall Street Journal. I then consequently saw it reported by Bloomberg Business News. And they're talking about a 10% stake worth as much as 
of some $2.5 billion, but no details based on whether it be a simple 10% ownership stake in the entirety of their operations, whether it's very specific things in Sudbury or Labrador or at Long Harbor. I was wondering if you so, had any further info. No, I, I mean, we've got a pretty solid relationship with leadership there. Whenever there's a change of any sort that's going to impact on operations here, we usually are given wind of it. In this case, we have not had that conversation, so I'm not anticipating any kind of change or impact on us. Uh, you know, the big thing I think you're seeing a lot of is that, especially when it comes to the Saudis, is there's capital. Everybody's looking for capital all the time. The Saudis are throwing a lot of money around, and great for them. They have the ability to do that. But when it comes to what that means for us, I just think it's going to—it's a continuation of how things go. I don't think you're going to see an impact on operations, jobs, or anything like that. We're, not, we're certainly not meeting with them and in terms of operational issues. Yeah, and I mean, I know this is maybe not your ballywick. Maybe it's more of a federal conversation about foreign investment. You know, the Canada Investment Act is pretty clear. We saw the feds uh, require the Chinese to divest of their equity stake in a couple of critical mineral companies. So I just wonder how anybody views Saudi Arabian money these days. You talk about throwing around capital. They were willing to pay a French football player a billion dollars for one season. So <laughs> money is certainly not an issue for the Saudis. Any thought on... You know, who is investing in any th any businesses operating in this country and specifically in this province? Well, you know, it's it's a great point. I mean, it's something obviously we have to be aware of. I mean, when you look at the Saudis, I mean, whether it's the Live Golf uh, Tour or, like you say, I, I, I was watching with great interest the, uh, the football saga there when you're talking about giving a guy $775 million. I, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, what I would say to you is this. I mean, I think it's more of a federal issue. Um, in terms of keeping an eye on what the investment looks like here. I, I mean, I have my views on it. I mean, but at the same time, we have to look at capital. Capital is not readily available. We have to find a way to eh, at least be aware of what the human rights regimes are. But at the same time, we have to look at, you know, it's sort of a balancing act is what I would say to you. I was just wondering if there was, you know, any final odds, because it was a bidding war. There was a Japanese company, Mitsui, was part of it. There was a Qatari Investment Authority was part of it, and, of course, the Saudi Public Investment Fund. On that front, I just say Qatar. They're now involved with our offshore industry. They're huge on gas. Have you heard any rumbles about gas since? Because when you hear some of these countries and these uh, big oil companies who are not huge in their oil portfolio but massive in their gas portfolio, when they come to town, it piques my interest. So they are absolutely interested in what we have here in the offshore, and we continue to look at what the possibilities are when it comes to our natural gas. Uh, so we actually, in the last budget, uh, invest, I think it was about $4.8 million. We're looking at what the feasibility is of the gas side of things. Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about it you know, nationally, uh, depending on who you look at. I mean, I still think that there's a window of opportunity there for us. Uh, but when you see the Qataris want to come here and uh, they, you know they partner with Exxon, they want to you know invest in what the opportunities are. There's there's a lot of there's, uh, what I would say is this: there's a lot of great opportunity there. Uh, we will certainly explore it and see what we can do. I'm look, I'm convinced that if we have a natural resource here that we can develop, uh, that will be used uh, on a global basis. Why not continue to explore that? So we are there. We, in fact, we we're hiring right now. We're looking for individuals to come and work with us on that. So we still see some runway there. We'll see where it goes. Um, 
that's best I guess I can say on that one right now. Before we get to opportunities, we'll finish up with wind. Uh, any update about the electrification of offshore? Because there's all kinds of talk about decarbonization, electrification, clean fuel regulations, up and down the line. But this has been kicked around forever. You know, electrifying publicly owned buildings and including the offshore. Because if we're talking about the big emitters, then attention to that has got to be part and parcel with moving forward, if there's ever going to be a new development. Yeah, I mean, that's something that we absolutely continue to talk about on numerous fronts. And the good thing is that the the producers themselves continue to want to be a part of that conversation. They recognize, too, that they have to be a part of the carbon, you know, the emission reduction planning. Uh, so they, it's one of those things where I think everybody's got to have a little bit of skin in the game. We cannot rely on just the feds to be a part of it. We've invested in that. They invest in that. We did a lot of work um in, I guess in just in numerous areas, it's not one big area that's looking at it. Like this, there's this Department of Environment, there's us, and there's numerous different funds that we use to find a way to go forward. Um, I don't know if there's a target per se. I mean, we all talk about how we have to hit net zero by 2050. I, I got to tell you, I have no doubt we will be fine in that front. We are not a province that has a concern on that. Uh, that's not going to be an issue, but you know, again, it comes down to I don't think that we have to, you know, bear the entire weight of that. I think the companies themselves need to, but they 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 want to be a partner. They they are absolutely a part of this game. They see the need for it. they they recognize where the direction of you know things are going. They want to be a part of it. You know, the forecast nationally is some four hundred billion dollars to accommodate population growth, economic growth, EVs, cooling systems, and the like. And that some will be an organic transition. Some may be influenced by federal government policy. Last one in the, in the oil business. Do you have any inside baseball info about Equinor coming back with an uh, exploration program next year? They got the Hercules semi-submersible going out to do some work at Sitka. Talking about it, the impact that it might have for trying to streamline the potential for Beta Nord. Do you know any more than we do based on the news release? So what I will say is this, that when they announced pause on things, there was a lot of conversation provincially. And, and, you know, obviously, look, it was a kick in the guts uh, because it wasn't something that was known to us. I guess the conversation since that time, there's been some negativity. What I will say is this, you do not continue to do exploration uh, in a place where you don't see a future opportunity. So it's absolutely a positive thing that they're looking at development. It's like anything these days. I mean, look, it doesn't matter how big and how much money. They want to reduce the cost. So when it comes to Beta Nord, I mean, they want to find a way to maximize the potential, which means increasing the resource, which means you know decreasing the cost potentially of what the, uh, the operation looks like. But, I mean, to me, look, they're exploring. That means they're interested here. And I'm so I'm I think it's a positive thing. I try not to get too up or too down. Some people go all, you know, crazy with like, you know, oh, it's the end of the world. It's never the end of the world. We got a lot of things going on here. This is a positive sign. When's the next uh, announcement regarding which companies move forward with the wind, hydrogen, ammonia play? Well, uh crossing my fingers because it's not always up to me. Uh I've got a feeling that before the end of the month I will be making an announcement on that. Uh, we're still on schedule. Everything's looking good to make an announcement on uh, who the successful proponents are. So I can't say an exact date, but I've got a feeling before the end of August we're still on track. Last one. Where are we with uh, regulatory issues, royalty regimes, and the like with offshore wind? 
uh, continues to move forward. We've had some, uh, we continue to have a lot of discussions with the feds. Uh, I can't say that we've got the royalty regime worked out right. The big thing, I guess, was uh, figuring out the in ground, like, you know, what is actually still within our jurisdiction, trying to figure out the onshore, the coastal bays thing. Uh, so that is very, a very active file. Offshore, uh, I can't say that, put it this way, it's moving, but it's not the top priority right now. A lot of the bandwidth is being committed to getting the onshore done and finalizing at the door. Uh, but the good news is, like, up till even yesterday, I am getting correspondence from people outside of this province, you know, global companies that are writing us saying, we want to be in Newfoundland and Labrador. So, again, I have a lot of reasons to be positive, but we just got to continue to move the files forward. Um, trying our best i mean we got a, a small but very dedicated team and you know like i said there's only so much we can get done at a time uh so if the royalty regime isn't completed are the regulatory issues jurisdictional authority has that been settled not completely but we're in a very good place it's it's moving forward as per plan uh we're trying to get the the i guess the jurisdictional side figured out first which is you know what falls within newfoundland labrador coastal waters which means it's, it, it belongs to us what does the offshore look like? So that's moving forward very, I mean, I'm impressed. It's, it's moving forward in a swift way. I mean, I've seen some files that take years. This one's going to be solved a lot quicker than that. Uh, so we're, we're on track to get it done, and certainly you know, we're going to get there soon. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you, Minister. All the best. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's Andrew Parsons. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology, the Liberal Member for Burgio Poyle. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to get official reaction from the Eating, Eating Disorder Foundation about the implications of the healthy food policy at the Health Sciences Centre. That's just in the Easter Zone, I believe, for NL Health Services. Paul Toomey, right after this. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. While we're happy to help different organizations promote some of their awareness campaigns and fundraising initiatives, this morning we're going to revisit a conversation with the Eating Disorder Foundation and their executive director, Paul Toomey, based on eating disorders and some of the policies coming forward from the NL Health Services. Join us online, everyone is indeed Mr. Toomey. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about this issue this morning. Yeah, let's dig into it. I made a comment off the top when I did a hit with Jerry Lynn Mackey and again reiterated it during the preamble that, you know, there's some pretty distinct commentary coming from your, your association, your organization, about what it means to make choices and find balance and information and awareness versus blacklisting food. What's the official reaction from your group regarding this healthy food policy? Yeah, I think, Patty, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, The biggest problem here is that society really tries to classify foods as good or bad. And the real fact is that there is no bad food. Everything provides some form of energy, and everything has a time and a place. Our view is that there needs to be balance and moderation, and people have to think about the psychological issues that stem from people's relationship with food. So those are the kinds of things that are that are important to us. And comfort foods, and you used the term earlier this morning, have a role to play many times in recovery. And that's not only from eating disorders. It's from many illnesses. People rely on those comfort foods. 
Uh, I guess even beyond that, there's the, uh, I guess, the pressure of trying to find those healthy foods. The costs play a role here as well. The fact is, healthy choices, as, as uh, Eastern Health has, has termed it, are expensive. And this is a factor that creates additional stress for many people today. And it's particularly concerning with individuals dealing with an eating disorder because they don't need more stress about finding the foods that they will accept and getting into a routine of having a regular diet of things not only that they like but are, are helpful to them. So how does the conversation work between healthcare providers dealing with patients who have an eating disorder about choice? Because, you know, it's one thing for us to have the general conversation with nutritionists and what have you about, you know, looking at the label and understanding the amount of sodium or fats or whatever is safe to consume or sugars, whatever the case. So how does it actually sound with a clinician and a patient? Well, from what I've read and from the discussions I've had with, with healthcare providers who are dealing with people with eating disorders, they have to recognize what are the barriers that people run up against in terms of eating? What are the triggers that trigger their eating disorder? And sometimes it's the non-availability of, of a particular food or product can be the trigger that forces you to say, well, I'm going to eat more. So we have to be concerned about that. So, again, I don't think the problem is going to be solved by banning foods. You know, maybe a better approach would be, and this is a terrible analogy, I know, similar to what was done with uh, tobacco and cigarette products. It was behind the counter. You had to ask for it. You know, maybe that's the start instead of instead of banning foods. And again, banning foods is is not where we where we want to be because certain foods do help people in their recovery. And as long as the moderation is there, as long as there's a balance in a diet, we think that every food has a role to play. I'll inevitably be told that, you know, it's a healthcare setting. Health has to be the guiding principle. And certain foods don't belong in a hospital, don't belong in a school. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you have a loved one admitted to a hospital, if you can't get it in the canteen, you're going to bring it with you when you come to visit. So it just seems like, you know, if this is an approach taken with staff, that's one thing. But the staff will bring what they want in their bag lunch as well. So not really sure what the intended goal is here because people can eat what they want, where they want, when they want, because they can buy anywhere else outside the hospital setting. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right on that. And and perhaps uh, the introduction of, of a policy of this type uh, uh, has probably created uh, a lot of discussion, certainly, uh, from, from what we've seen. And, and, and that's probably a good thing. And I think like any, any policies, um, they need to be thought through. And you need to consider the uh, uh, the views of the people who are going to be the users. And, um, uh, you know, perhaps this, this is a policy that does need to be revisited because it, it certainly doesn't focus on balance and moderation. And it certainly doesn't look at the costs, that the implications to people today to, to, to go for these so-called health, healthy choices. And, and I get where Eastern Health is coming from. I mean, Me there too. is obviously a desire in the, the world we live in to, to, to 
get people to eat healthier, but we have to consider that there are psychological Im- implications to forcing people in a certain direction. Yeah, I mean, even something like I can still get a muffin, but I can't get a donut. I mean, I've read plenty when we talk about nutritional contact, uh, uh, content and the impact on your overall health. What's actually worse than the other? And there's, there's, I think, a fair conversation to be had. Like many things here, and again, I'm with you. I understand their thought process here, but I wonder what the consultations look like to incorporate all of the different angles, whether it be mental anxiety, whether it be the comfort food business, whether it be the ability to bring it in regardless if it's available at a vending machine. I just wonder how that looked before it all rolled out. Yeah, and Patty, I'm I'm not sure the answer on that, but uh, I I certainly will say that uh, it's never too late to revisit any policies. And the fact that the the rollout here is over a three-year period, I think, gives some time to rethink what's been done and to rethink uh, what's being suggested for future parts of that rollout. And and certainly, uh, as a foundation and an advocate for uh, for eating disorder patients, and that we'd certainly like to be a part of that process and uh, provide uh, the information that we have and also um, work with the healthcare providers in the area of eating disorders to, to get a better understanding of, of what's being done here and what, what actually should be offered to people uh, in, in the position that we're in or that they are in. I appreciate the time this morning, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. I appreciate the opportunity. I know it is my second time this week, but uh, and, and I'm not mentioning anything about fundraising. I, I appreciate the time. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Paul Toomey, Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. And this is not just a, this is bad. It's a, how did we arrive at these conclusions and the phase roll in or roll out? What the consultation looks like, where there's considerations given to the variety of concerns people have been voicing. So that's just the way to try to dig into some public policy. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Dr. Rapinder Tour, she's the medical director and founder at the IUD and Women's Clinic. She's next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the medical director and founder at the IUD and Women's Clinic. That's Dr. Rapinder Tour. Dr. Tour, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good. Yeah, it's a bit early here. I'm calling from Calgary, Alberta, so uh, I'm excited to say good morning to your listeners. We appreciate you getting up that early. So three and a half hour difference. So yes, quite early in Calgary. Yes. So I'm I'm calling today because um, I started a petition, uh, or I filed a petition with the government of Canada asking for birth control to be free across Canada. And the rationale is what? Because you know as well as I do, when the public hears, let's do this for free. Now, we put female hygiene hygiene products in schools and the the like. When people hear free, they kind of go, why should anything be free? What's the rationale, Dr. Tour? Yeah, well, I guess there's a couple of sort of merits to the policy. But before we talk about what the policy is about, I think it's always good to talk about what it's not about. And I think sometimes when we talk about, you know, making birth control free across the country, some people feel that maybe we're encouraging, you know, everybody to go and have sex. And, you know, this is, I guess, you know, we just want to reframe that birth control is not about sex. Birth control is about having a reproductive life plan. Um, And, you know, being able to implement that plan um, and deciding how many children you want to have and when you want to have them shouldn't depend on what 
how much money you have in your bank account. It shouldn't depend on where you live across the country. You know, that should be accessible to all people. Um, and there's lots of merits to this policy. You talked about, you know, when we talk about something being free, really, how much is this going to cost us? Um, and the really great news about this policy is that it actually saves money. So for every dollar that we invest in universal contraception or free birth control, prescription birth control, it can save the system up to $9 um, in costs in the public sector, so taxpayer dollars. So it's a policy that actually um, saves money. So British Columbia passed this in April, and so that data is really strong. And they say within you know two years, it's cost neutral, and within three years, it's actually saving money. So it's very quick to do that. Um, and the reason that we're pushing for it on a federal level is that um, you know we see you know reproductive rights as human rights, and so again you know where you know if people need to access it, it shouldn't matter where they live or how much money they have. This should be a right that's accessible to all Canadians. You know, there's a bit of an inequity going on in the country now because in British Columbia it's fully covered, and in some you know in Ontario 25 and under are covered. In other provinces, the coverage is patchy, and sometimes it's difficult to access. You know, there's certain things that they have women have to do to be able to prove that they, they can access that um, and you know just from all the work that I've done you know with a lot of um, you know young girls and women that I see especially those ones that you know have vulnerable circumstances you know affordability sometimes really is an issue and so they get caught in this cycle you know where they're trying to break out let's say of the cycle of poverty and they're trying to get out of this cycle but you know not having access to contraception can really hold them back and you talk about enabling people to go and have sex well we're sexual beings people will for the most part be sexually active so uh, you talk about savings you know a dollar in saves us nine is that based on some sort of percentage or estimate about how many pregnancies are unintended yeah, so I think your listeners might be surprised to hear that 40% of pregnancies in Canada today are actually unintended. So there is a large portion of people who are getting pregnant and not wanting to, and sometimes access to contraception or access to finances to pay for that contraception can be a barrier. How does it look when you go to the general public? Because I assume there's been some polling done on this issue to give some horsepower to your petition being put in front of the House of Commons. You know, where do people come down on it? Is there a difference in age demographics, men versus women? Yeah, so we just issued a press release. There was a study um, that shows that 83% of Canadians approve of free prescription birth control across Canada, and 7 in 10 feel it's an urgent issue. We haven't touched on, you know, what's happening in the United States right now. Some of these, you know, access to this reproductive care is being restricted. Um, and so I think because of that, you know, in Canada, we feel like, you know, access to birth control, and that's talking about things like the birth control pill, IUDs, injectables, you know, implants, that, you know, that access should always be equitable and be secure across the country. It's difficult for me to talk about birth control outside of wearing a condom, but how should we be looking at it? Because people will talk about birth control pills or different birth control methods. You know, what is more most commonly used? What do people misunderstand about the different approaches to birth control? Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to birth control in particular, when we look at sort of across Canada, what's happening is the most popular forms of birth control aren't a necessarily the best or the most effective they're the cheapest right so we know that condoms and birth control pills um, and just even withdrawal those three are the most popular methods used across the country you know some of the more effective methods things like 
the longer acting contraceptives, IUDs, you know, they're, they're very effective, but you have to pay that cost up front. So you pay up to $500 um, for something that's going to last you for five years. So, you know, on the long term, it's effective, but you need to pay that cost up front. And that cost up front is a barrier for a lot of people. How does this petition and this conversation blend into uh, universal pharmacare? I mean, I talk about it on this program fairly frequently. Every time there's been a study done by the Senate in particular, it comes back with huge price tag up front, but long-term savings in the long run and a lot to deal with equity. So how does this portion of uh, your petition, your conversation, lend itself to the pharmacare conversation? Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that. We think Pharmacare would be a great sort of fit for this. You know, um, um, your listeners may not be aware that Canada is the only country in the world that has universal health care but does not have a Pharmacare program. And the government has committed to a Pharmacare program. And we understand that's going to take some time to implement and unroll. And it could be, you know, several years and, and things. But what we feel is that they do have to decide which meds are going to be covered first. And we feel that, you know, coverage of contraception would be a very symbolic and important first step of implementing that pharmacare program. And so I think if they've already committed to it, this would make sense that this would be one of the first things that they would do. Um, the other thing I want to talk about just quickly was, you know, um, our petition's been open um, for a couple of weeks. We only were in our last sort of 10 days, so it closes on August 25th. Um, and we're really pleased, you know, we've had almost 5,000 signatures already. Um, but the reason I called in today is we only have 38 from Newfoundland. And I I have to think that maybe, you know, your listeners or the people in Newfoundland aren't quite aware of this petition. Um, and that's why I wanted to make sure we got on the air today and just gave, you know, everybody the opportunity to weigh in on it. We're really excited about the petition because this conversation has been had on many different levels regionally you know federally um, you know different NDP governments are looking at implementing this you know across the country and you know we see that support for this policy really regardless of political uh, background you know that there's really good support even you know minimum 75 percent depending on you know what people voted for in the last uh, federal election Um, but we really want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to weigh in and so the petition closes on August 25th. Um, and that's why I thought it's important for me to call just to make sure that people in this land are aware. Um, and, you know, I just want to say that when we think of birth control, we often think it's a women's issue. And certainly women think about getting online and signing. Um, but, you know, birth control is, is a man's issue too, right? And so we want to say, you know, birth control is a shared responsibility. So we encourage men to go and, you know, stand up for the women that they love and make sure that they sign this petition. Um, and youth can sign as well. We know certainly, you know, um, a lot of those, you know, financial barriers are more prominent in people who are 29 and under and there is no minimum age to sign the petition as long as you have an email you can register and you're a resident of Canada you can sign and your vote will count yeah birth uh, and birth control is a man and a woman's issue as is parenting as is daycare Uh, inside the pharmacare world I know people talk about the enormous uh, sovereign debt that we've you know encountered throughout the pandemic but every single report that's ever been done whether it be Dr. Eric Hoskins or others about pharmacare is demonstrably clear about the potential savings and the equity that it performs. There's millions of Canadians every day that are not refilling the prescriptions based on cost. Millions of Canadians who are taking half of their dosage per day based on cost. And when you don't take the uh, required amount of drugs or refill your prescription, you're back in the hospital. No more expensive thing in this country than a night in the hospital. Uh, Appreciate the time uh, this morning, Dr. Tor, all the way from Calgary. How's Alberta treating you? It's been good. Yeah, we've been having a great summer. And, um, you know, I did, uh, I have been out to Newfoundland. I actually almost had gone to uh, 
Mund University for my medical training, um, but I ended up staying locally for that. But uh, you, it's a great region in the country, and I look forward to coming back there again. Beautiful province is Alberta, as is this province. I met, married my wife, and had both of my children in Alberta. Uh, appreciate the time. Wonderful. Nice speaking with you. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Rapinder Tor, the medical director, founder at the IUD and Women's Clinic. Let us go to line number two. Robert, you're on the air. Good morning, Robert, on line number two. You want me to put him on hold there? Let's do that, and we'll see if we can revisit the conversation with him. Look, I get the, the obvious concerns people have with how much money is being spent, 100%, and we have to be extremely attentive to it because at some point, monies have to be repaid. Everyone understands that. And the amount of debt that's been taken on since 2015 is staggering. But not every dollar spent is created equal. The PharmaCare conversation is decades old, and as Dr. Tor rightfully points out, the only country on the face of the earth with a population of 10 million or, or more with universal health care, we're the only country without universal pharmacare. And the price tag is massive. But if you're at all interested in it, and it might be half dry reading, but the executive summary of the most recent report and the uh, person behind was Dr. Eric Hoskins and his team, it's really quite clear about what it would mean, what it would cost, and what it would save. So, you know, for some of these massive items and these massive policies, you know, I don't have the expertise to try to figure it all out, but the people who do, and th- whether there was reports been commissioned during conservative governments or liberal governments, the outcome has been the same every time. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. We'll come back. Robert's next to talk about the disability benefit, and then we'll speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number two again. Robert, you're on the air. I have no idea what's going on there. Uh, Go to four, Dave. Okay. Let's go to line number four. Say good, uh, good morning to the president of the Freshwater Alexander Bay Ecosystem Corporation. That's John Baird. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Thank you very much. And ha- thanks for the opportunity. Happy to have you on, sir. Uh, I'll tell you who we are. I am the president of the Freshwater Alexander Bay's Ecosystem Corporation. We're based in Glovertown. And uh, we have been in or- an organization in place since 1995. We do stewardship work on Terranova River, Gamble River, Middlebrook, and Northwest Brook. Uh, the reason I'm calling in today is I want to make the public aware of an invitation for a public launch of an exciting new program in partnership with the Atlantic Salmon Federation called the Wild Salmon Watersheds Program. I can tell you a little bit about that. Uh, We're going to have a launch next Friday on August the 25th, 12 noon, at the Bonavista Bay Search and Rescue Center at uh, Riverside Road, Glovertown. And the public is warmly invited to attend. We're going to have a free barbecue, an introduction to the program, and a guided walk along the mouth of the Ternal River. What exactly does the program entail? Um, It's a new program. Our group is uh, one of three groups in Atlantic Canada that's now partnered with the the Atlantic Salmon Federation for the Wild Salmon Watersheds Program. And basically, um, historically, I suppose, a lot of the focus in salmon conservation and restoration has been on the most uh, severely depleted areas. 
And what this program is doing is focusing on rivers that are relatively healthy and trying to keep those rivers healthy. So it'll be a lot of research and initiatives to mitigate climate change, which is probably our biggest threat on the rivers these days, um, and trying to keep salmon healthy in those rivers. What do we know currently, based on research, the, the implications or some of the factors that influence the, the salmon returns? Uh, I th- well, um, climate change is a big one. Uh, we had a lot of success in our group uh, over the last 30 years trying to enhance the salmon population on the Terranova River, and until 2019, the numbers climbed very steadily. Since 2019, especially in 21 and 22, and probably a little less so this year, the numbers have declined largely because the water temperatures have been so high and the water levels so low that um, the returns to the river have uh, declined. Yeah, I mean, people talk about all sorts of implications, whether it be climate change-related matters, water temperature, food sources, sea ice, up and down the line. There's obviously a lot of factors. So do you, does your organization do work beyond salmon-related matters? Because when we talk about ecosystems, the tenuous balance that we have to strike to have a healthy ecosystem is one of the biggest scientific endeavors we're talking about worldwide because we don't know a whole lot about the ocean and or waterways. So do you do work beyond salmon? Yes, we do. Yeah. Well, salmon, we do a lot of work with, so that includes uh, trout. Uh, but we also work with uh, government agencies, especially the Department of Forestry, in terms of forest management planning in those uh, watersheds. And we've had some, some success in terms of uh, where roads go, where the routing of roads go, uh, what roads should be decommissioned after logging practices have uh, logging has taken place and planting has been restored and um, also uh, creating good buffers in areas that are very sensitive to uh, public access and uh, and and forestry close to the rivers so we've done a, a fair amount in terms of other land uses as well so it's all about keeping a healthy ecosystem so who are some of the partners? I've managed the Atlantic Salmon Federation, the Salmonoid Group. Do you do work with organizations like WERAC, for instance? Uh, we haven't done any much with WERAC. Uh, we're very aware of what they do, and we, sort of, we certainly support what they're doing. Um, but we've partnered with, in government partners have included um, Terranova National Park. They've helped us out a fair amount with projects. And... Uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, especially the science uh, branch of Fisheries and Oceans. We're working very closely with them on a lot of our research initiatives. Appreciate the time, John. Before we go, give the folks the details for the rollout and the event coming up. Okay. It's, uh, it's next Friday at 12 noon at the Bonavista Bay Search and Rescue Center in Glovertown, which is right next to the river. There will be a free barbecue. There will be an introduction to the program and what it's all about, and uh, a, wa- a guided walk along the mouth of the river and some opportunities for casting under some of our more experienced uh, anglers. Good to have you on this morning's show. Uh, thanks, John. Thank you very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. John Baird, president of the Freshwater Alexander Bay Ecosystem Corporation. Let's give it one more shot on line number two. Robert, you are on the air. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Robert, one thing, you should turn down your radio so we can hear each other. Oh, okay. Um.
partners. Thank you. Government partners have included <laughs> okay, here we go. What's on your mind? Uh, uh, disability form that uh, you had to write down uh, the number there. I was uh, trying to get a hold of that because I got to get uh, somebody else to, to do it for me because I don't have a machine, you know? Okay. Yeah, because the Canada Disability Benefit Act got royal assent uh, at the end of June. So there are new disability benefits that people can avail of. So let, I don't know if I have a specific number, but let me see if I can find it because I've been sharing the uh, email address and what have you. Yeah, yeah. So is there because it's it's simply with the government of Canada inside. Yeah. So, does someone is someone going to be able to do this for you, Robert? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, Here, here's the best thing because I've got tons of information, but I don't know if there's a very specific, easy to access telephone number because so much of this stuff actually, as you know, happens online. So, da, 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 yeah. no, there's not a good phone number here. It's just the general number. So, how about this? The person who's going. Sorry. I was just going to. I was just going to get the like, like the form that uh, Patty was saying you had to print out. Like. Yeah, I can give you the form. So I can also give you a phone number. I don't think it's going yeah. to be great. You're probably going to have to spend a bit of time waiting. But do you want to take the uh, the telephone number? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I think we help. Uh, the toll free number is one eight hundred. Two seven seven. Two seven seven. Ninety nine. Ninety nine. So ninety nine fourteen is the last four. Fourteen. Yep. Okay. So what I also want you to do though, just so you have all the information available, first thing when you make that phone call, you have to have your social insurance number uh, handy. Yeah. So do that. And secondly, yeah. whoever's going to ha- help you do it online, you tell them to send me an email looking for the information. I'll send them everything I have. So make it easier on them. Yeah, okay, and I'll just send send it to uh, Dave at VOCM? Uh, It's just openline at VOCM.com. They'll be able to find my email address on our website, too, so it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. That goes right to me. Yeah, uh, V-O-C-M. Yeah, but is that just uh, like, like C-O or C-O-M? C-O-M is the last three letters. And okay. so the person that's going to help you, they'll be they'll be able to figure that out. No problem to get in touch with me. They send me an email. I'll send them back all the info I have. Try to make it easier for them to help you. Yeah. How about that? Work? Okay, I appreciate it, man. No problem, Robert. All the best. Yeah, you have a good day. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right, there we go. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, DFO, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. Patty, uh, yes, talk about DFO this morning. I got a couple points I'd like to mention. Uh, Patty, I think uh, last week, I think, uh, you had a person on talking about the uh, the disabled fisher program, and uh, he wanted to get a uh, a permit for his relative, I guess, uh, but couldn't because of the dis- disability uh, way DFO had laid out. I'd just like to point out, point out attention to that and for DFO to make it more clearer 
for people with disabilities or, or whatever to uh, be able to get that designation form a lot easier. Well, apparently at this stage, and the caller was talking about disabilities only apparently include mobility disabilities as opposed to cognitive disabilities. So it's a bit of a strange way to, you know, determine which person can do and uh, prosecute or execute the uh, fishery safely when, in fact, if this particular caller was talking about, uh, I believe it was their mother-in-law, has uh, Alzheimer's, then maybe, just maybe, a designated uh, person to fish on their behalf is... Easily, it's easily done. I don't know why they've made this distinction. Yeah, it's unfortunate, Patty. And uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm I'm dealing with kind of along the same lines with the in provincial side of it. But uh, you know, we're making make great strides here. But I think you know, it, it's a it's a simple fix for DFO to fix this uh, situation with the uh, with the disabled uh, sure. uh, persons. Uh, Patty, second thing now is uh, I seen a post that by uh, Vista MHA PC MHA. Um, uh, Craig Perry about the boat limit on food fishery and uh, the way he termed it, it was like he just discovered it and, and everything else but this boat limit situation has been on the go for three years I think it's high time for DFO to come out and clear up the, the, the uh, confusion that's, that's about uh, about all this well you know, and it becomes even muddier when we talk about you might not get the same reaction from an enforcement officer from one officer to another. So, you know, they've always told the exact same line. It's five per person, 15 per boat. But then even in an email that you shared with me, which I've shared far and wide, it said quite clearly that if there's five of you, you can get five each. So it's about time they just say exactly what's going on here. You know, it might even save us some of the repeat fishing trips that some people take the same day. You know, you go out with the three and you come in with your 15 you go back out after lunch to get another 15 or maybe to try to give a couple of spread the wealth around the community but there's just no need for it to be unclear absolutely patty absolutely and uh, the third point now patty about tfo is the fishery guardian or the river guardian situation uh we we've added now to 2019 Colin white and myself and uh we're trying to get somewhere with it but uh it doesn't seem like it. Now, we had uh, DFO Minister Murray uh, in the past, last year, come out on the public media and say exactly what we've been saying all along, is that they, they, when she extended the 40 extra uh, fishery guardians and extended them for four extra weeks, and she even admitted on, in public media how important it is and to, for this uh, program to continue. But, and from that, then, we took it as a, uh, as a win for the, in, the, in the battle, but not the war. And we figured that everything would be put in place this year for it had to extend it. But as of yet, there's no extension. Uh, now, we've got the end of the season come up now, another couple of weeks. The low water conditions, warm water conditions, salmon all pooled up, and, and po- would be poultry just waiting for the, uh, for the fishery guardians to uh, end, their, end their job. Now, Patty, I'm not putting down the federal or provincial uh, enforcement because they have their own job to do, and they have a lot of responsibilities with it. But we have a group of uh, dedicated fishery uh, uh, guardians who are tried, test, tested, and, and true. And yeah, we're just waiting for DFO new minister now. And please, I hope they don't come out and say, "Oh, well, we got a new minister, and we get to start all over again." Because that's, you know, that's—I'm not going to say what it is. We all know what it is. 
Yeah, my understanding is there's a conversation around extending uh, guardians, some of the guardians, but not all. And I don't know how that breakdown will work because we know we have an issue regarding poaching. We just know it to be true. Uh, and then there's been, of course, the variance in how people are punished for when they're caught poaching, which is just extraordinary. The story on the West Coast from a couple of years ago always comes to mind where a prominent citizen got basically a slap on the wrist. His co-poacher got taken to the cleaners. So there, that's another thing. But if we have a problem with poaching and we think the Guardian program is important enough to, I think last year the value of the contract was $5 million. Some minor extension was granted. Whether they've changed the overall approach and the value of the contract this year, I don't know. But you're 100% right. When people know the Guardians are done for the year, then that's where they break out their, uh, their, their garden worms and their, uh, their nets and whatever else they use to poach and or break the rules. Yes, Teddy, and very unfortunate. I got to say, and I'll bring up once again about the, uh, the 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 feelings that we get here on the East Coast, Newfoundland, Labrador, specifically, compared to the West Coast with the British Columbia. It seems like DFO has a, a, a bottomless pit of money to give to uh, to give to uh, uh, to British Columbia for whatever you know, agriculture, the enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. And they gave a lot of money already, and. We're just wondering why, why, why it is that we're being left out in the cold. And, it, you know, federal DFO and provincial DFO here needs to be a good shake to wake them up and see what's on the go. Fair enough. I appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Thanks a lot. Patty, thank you very much. It's always been a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. Stay in touch. Thank right, you. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, say there's a new minister responsible and consequently unlikely to get some answers or quick responses to requests for them to join us on the program and answer some questions. My Also, I understand that the new Minister of Fisheries and Oceans is uh, only speaks one language, that happens to be French. If, I, if I'm mistaken, someone please go ahead and set me straight. But the issue regarding, like even timeliness of decisions coming from DFO, it's sort of confusing. You know, whether it be uh, the total allowable catch of one species or another, or for many people listening to the program this morning, exactly when the recreational food fishery is going to open up. Because this year, right uh, once again, it was down to basically the 11th hour. I don't know what role uh, those dates play with people trying to book some time off or to make travel plans or whatever the case may be. But it always just seems to be so late. And I've never really been able to understand exactly why that would be the case, given the fact that this year's food fishery, recreational food fishery, is almost identical to last year's. 39 days, pretty much the exact same time frame. No change on the days of the week that you're allowed to fish, but yet it just takes forever and a day and countless requests to get that type of information released. So, you know, again, inside the, the professional industry of the fishery, you know, whether it be required amendments to the Fisheries Act, whether it be a better understanding of what co-management uh, actually looks like here because as we all know the difference of the different approach that dfo takes with the west coast of the country versus the east coast of the country is stark whether that be in the world of agriculture or otherwise and of course there's a vastly different commercial uh fishing industry on this coast versus the west coast of the country but you know obviously whatever's been attempted over the years simply doesn't work and just for the sake of folks who are in the fishing industry directly or indirectly you know, we talk about all the issues that are the seasonal conversations. And so much would be cleared up 
if when the last time the Fisheries Act was amended, there was no attention to one thing and one thing only, it's the proximity, you know, the adjacency rule. If every decision based on total allowable catch and all the various rules and implications of the rules around the uh, fishing industry in this province, if adjacency was the guiding principle, a lot of the problems would be addressed. But of course, that's never been the case because the federal government, their involvement, their role in the fishery beyond science and the compilation science and the declaration of total allowable catch we know as well as everybody else in the country who's being honest with, with themselves the fishing industry has been used as bait the fishing industry has been used as part of diplomacy and trade negotiations and discussions and consequently you know the prominence of some not necessarily just offshore Canadian trawlers, but it's also the foreign overfishing issue and the percentage of whatever quota uh, for whatever species, how much is being fished by countries other than Canada, and what that means. You know, it's, it's a conversation that the feds are obviously loath to have. Some of the trade agreements or discussions that have already taken place, you know, the possibility to roll them back to ensure more of the percentage of the species caught from any species, turbot or whatever you want to include in this conversation. More of that to be caught by Canadian fishers versus fishers abroad. All of the obvious uh, foreign fishing fleets that we've seen operating in our waters forever and a day. And then when you add to that conversation, it's what seems to be a pretty toothless organization in NAFO, which I believe has uh, its headquarters in Spain. And what happens when and if anybody's caught in contravention of whether it be dumping water at sea, dumping uh, liquids at sea, dumping garbage at sea, whether it be foreign overfishing, whatever the case may be, not much takes place on that front. All right, uh, so I am told by another uh, careful watcher of the Guardian program that they are indeed talking of extending the Guardians, but uh, asking me to get more information and answers from DFO, which I'm happy to try. Uh, maybe Dave will resubmit a formal request for DFO to come on and talk about things like we'll start with the Guardian issue, and then there's obviously a litany of issues we can deal with with DFO. All right, we're on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you, and the topic, as you know, is entirely up you. doesn't matter if I brought it up or if you heard it on the show. You want to comment, critique, criticize, or elaborate, you can do it right after this. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, interesting email. I've made comment off the top. You know, we talked about the new inflation numbers. It's gone from 2.8% in June to 3.3% in July. Talked about some of the uh, complicated factors regarding gas prices, electricity prices, what have you. And then when we looked at groceries again, because look, no matter who you are, unless you are absolutely at the top of the earnings ladder, grocery shopping has been scary business. So the point I put out there, and I wondered what people thought of it, and this particular person thinks it's an absolutely atrocious idea, is to look at what they're doing in whether it be in France or in Germany. And they've gone to the manufacturers and the grocers, the retailers, to talk about a cap at a certain level, not that you can't make any money, but a cap on prices for some of the very basics. And, of course, whether that be bread and certain fruits and vegetables and baby formula and the like, I don't know how bad an idea it is. Uh, 
my conversation or my comment was maybe a look at how it could or should work and actual policy experts to talk about, you know, what lessons were learned from what was deemed to be a disastrous rollout in the 1970s. So I'm a little surprised as anyone who thinks that's absolutely uh, a disaster in the making when, in fact, food choices have now been, I would imagine, at the very top of the financial concerns in most households. Because regardless of what you drive or where you live and how much you make, we all share one thing, and that's the need to eat. So that's not really a political conversation. That's a policy conversation. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. How are you this morning? Not too bad, sir. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, Patty, I was listening to your preamble this morning uh, about the uh, food changes over at the Health Science uh, uh, four or five days ago, my wife was reading me a release. She works at the uh, uh, at the Janeway, and she was reading me this release, and I, I laughed. And then this morning on the VOCM website, I was watching the same story about the change of menus and things, and I said to myself, wow, oh, wow, who comes up with this stuff? Uh, 14, 15 years ago, when Daffodil Place opened, and they approached me, from the Canadian Cancer Society and asked us if we would, you know, look after the kitchen for them, if we would prepare the food and all those kind of things, which, of course, we've been doing ever since they opened. And um, working with the Canadian Cancer Society at the beginning was that same debate as to what's going to be our menu. And my uh, initial reaction was, hey, guys, how can it be our responsibility to teach people to change their eating habits for the stay, short stay they have at the facility. You know, these people are, are suffering from cancer, and, uh, you know, we're going to bring them in and we're going to give them meals that that nobody eats, basically, and salt-free and tasteless and all those things. Why don't we just, you know, find a happy medium? And that's what we did in consultation with the Cancer Society. We have a menu there that, you know, includes lots of what people will call healthy food products, but we still serve, you know, deep-fried cod. We have jigs dinners. We have stews and soups, and we have all those things. And, you know, when you go to the health science, so my wife has just come out of the health science center over there where she was there for, for over a week, and, man, she just couldn't eat that stuff. You know, I went in one day, and I said, what are you having for lunch? And she said, we're having creamed carrot soup. What in the name of goodness is cream carrot soup? So my, my, my tack on all of this stuff is that what are they trying to do? You know, uh, if you go over to the Health Science Center now and you look at the food being picked up, every single tray nearly, they're bringing the food and they're throwing it away. Uh, man, oh, man. I don't know. I, I had to uh, – I didn't know what to think when I seen this, all these changes that are happening now to food at the Health Science Center. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, f- hospital food has long been tagged as being no good. I know they've changed some of their approach to how they pr- produce food and the meals for the patients uh, in the hospital. But And I'm not working in dietary, so I don't know exactly what happens. But people have told me, and they say they work in housekeeping and or dietary, that there's even some packaged stuff. You know, it's one thing if you get some scraps left on a plate that are returned to the kitchen.
kitchen, they, of course, like most kitchens, get scraped into the garbage. But there are some things that are sealed, packaged, that are also making the way to the garbage, whether it be a sealed package of cookies or a little thing of milk or something or other. To me, that's shocking. Now, it's easy enough to be footloose and fancy free when it's not your money, but it is your money for your taxpayer. It's our money. So I don't know what sort of focus or attention is given to throwing away food that can absolutely make its way to the next tray or the next day because that prepackaged uh, pair of cookies, chocolate chip or oatmeal, they're going to be fine again tomorrow. They don't belong in the garbage. Uh, no, I totally agree with you. I just I just find that that I, I just don't understand the whole system of, of, of why they find it necessary to to serve the kind of food they're serving. Now, you know what I mean? I don't understand the whole concept of healthy and unhealthy food. Uh, you know, I got my wife's family are all coming home from the mainland. They arrived last night. Tonight they're at our house and we're doing a deep fried cod and fries and dressing and gravy and all those things. Now, some people say, you know, it's not healthy, it's deep fried. Man, oh man, sure, if you eat it every single day. But, you know, once every couple of weeks, if you have a jigs dinner or you have deep fried fish or you have something like this, if somebody gets in the hospital, what's wrong with giving them a pork chop or a, a bit of fish or, or something that, that has a bit of flavor to it instead of having it thrown away? Because what's happening? Everybody's bringing food into their, to, their, to the people that are there. That's those that have are able to have support people for it. Uh, and then you see, as you said, you know, all the packaged things that's being thrown away, the juices and the cookies and all those kind of things. Man, I think they need to understand, I have a study or something that, that reassess all these things and, and stop trying to change people's habits, eating habits, for three or four days stay in the hospital, you know? And, and in the... And in the big picture, you know, there's also how the contracts are let and the value of the contracts, the amount of money leaving the province for things like food preparation, food service, and a lot of different things that the Compass Group is involved with. They're a massive company. And we've had a caller, Mike, I believe is his name, call many, many times about it. And we've tried to get down to the brass tacks and figure out that contract issue a bit more clearly. But having a devil of a time, I suppose i got to go back to the well and give it another shot. But that's another issue regarding just how expensive it is to administer health care in this province is based on some of those big contracts as well. That's right. Yeah, I know. Quick issue, Patty. I meant to call you, but about a month ago, I was driving down Old Mabel's Road with my son. And uh, as I stopped, uh, a couple of people were there, and I helped her old elderly lady at the ditch, and she had been struck by a hit-and-run driver. Uh, so we helped her up. We called the police. We called the ambulance, and we got her ready and, and transported. And when I came back that road a half an hour later the cops were there and they said they had found the door. Now this lady was, was walking with her back to traffic so that's the reason for her to get hit. Apparently the, 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 the mirror on this truck hit her and really really cut her up. I bandaged her and, and all those things to get her going but I find that uh, a week or so later I seen a woman walking down the same road again with her back to the traffic with a you know, there's not two feet of, of, of sidewalk there to walk on, or there's no sidewalk at all, there's gravel. And I stopped, I said, man, look, I picked up a woman here last week who got hit walking with her back. Oh, ex-military. And what came out of her mouth was words I never heard before. And, 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 you know, I don't understand why the police or somebody doesn't undertake a program to to walk facing traffic. 
You know, it's crazy, man. I go down that road every single day when I, when I come into work. I drive down Old Babel's Road, and I see people with their, their backs to me. And, and you know, and again, there's no excuse for this woman to get hit. Uh, but it could have been prevented because if you see the truck coming at her, she just step out of the way. But when your back is to the traffic, and it's all over the city, you see people walking. And I know, I know. It's crazy, so that's my other rant for today. I I can tell you what, Tom. uh, I'm going to get an email in the next 30 seconds that says we're blaming the victim. I I think when we have shared roadways, you know, between pedestrians and cyclists and motorists, yes, absolutely the number one responsibility lies with the hands of the the motorist. But when we talk about overall approach to safety, wearing something that that illuminates your presence at night and walking facing traffic and making sure you stick to the sidewalk as opposed to running or walking in the road, cycling in the safe fashion, abiding by all the rules. So when we have a shared responsibility to safety, yes, we can absolutely rightfully focus in on the person driving the truck or the minivan or the little sedan. Yep, they've got the big control because they're the they're the most dangerous because when they hit a cyclist, they don't get hurt. When they hit a, a walker, they don't get hurt, but the rest of us do. So, yeah, it's a shared responsibility. I'll, I'll spare you the uh, criticism I'm going to get in my email inbox. <laughs> I'll get it, too. I'll get it, too. Sure Look, it wasn't the woman's fault it wasn't the woman's fault no it was the driver's fault for sure uh, and she was the victim and and i mean that seriously but it could have been prevented probably if she had been walking on the proper side of the road and yeah i'll get the same emails i'll get the same calls and, and but anyway that's what you deal with these days so that's how it goes thank you for the time and thank you for listening to my rants this morning appreciate the time tom Okay. All right, take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, and this is via an emailer. And it's about, you know, once again, going to the grocery store. And, yes, there's a fair point being made by this person. And it's when you have the weekly sale items, right? But then it requires you to buy multiple of these of the product and so consequently it might feel like a savings but you maybe didn't need the multiple items you just needed one but you just feel the pressure to take advantage of the sale because of the obvious reasons it's the potential long-term savings but that's not really the easiest or the best thing for the shopping public so this person is absolutely right there's a complication that comes with a sale if you have to buy say three of something that you only really need one and it might not be an item that you use or go to or eat every single day or week so that's a fair point and if you want to add that to the conversation we can do exactly that we're going to try to take a break on time one of the discussions that gets really dismissed quite uh, quickly in some corners is when we talk about addiction services. Mental health conversations have gone a little bit better over the past years, but conversations regarding addictions, not so much. You know, and someone wrote me an email, and I continue to recall it, is about the fact that this person's child... Uh, has a food allergy and you know we talk about free naloxone kits and the conversation about whether or not a nasal spray naloxone is important or safe injection sites harm reduction policies regulating the supply of drugs and they say you know well we're giving away all these things for free you know naloxone kits what about my EpiPen you're right the only issue that I think makes the conversation a bit different is there's no social stigma associated with having a food allergy 
Right? None. People have them. You know, you can't bring a peanut or a, uh, a kiwi to school, and fair enough. But, you know, there is a huge stigma uh, associated with drug addiction. And it's not just how people view those who may be addicted, even though it might have started on the street, it might have started on a doctor's prescription pad after a painful surgery and recovery. Lots of ways where people find themselves addicted. And then it becomes a death spiral for so many. And it's how you get help when and if you need help. So I think the conversation is important. You know, in this province, there's been a report over the weekend of three additional overdose deaths, which brings the tally to, goodness, maybe in the neighborhood of 15 over the last month or so. Let's go ahead and take a break. Brenda wants to talk about exactly that right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Brenda. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Great. Well, I wouldn't say great, but anyway, it's nice to talk to you. I've never been online before, so I'm familiar with your voice from time to time. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Um... What's on my mind ultimately relates to mental health and addictions. I have an addiction myself um, to alcohol, and I'm not in denial, thank God. Um, But uh, the services here in this province are not adequate. Um, And I'd like to talk about it because it's a little boy or 18-year-old or whatever died a couple weeks ago. I don't know. I don't watch the news because I can't even watch it. Um, But mom and dad told me about it, and it's got my heart broken. And I really want to try to save one person's life. So what's your experience? Uh, My experience is that... um, I went through a lot of trauma, and I worked with, worked with a company that did not support it. Um, in fact, I'm a school guidance counselor, and they did not even support me trying to support people like that because if somebody was having an odd experience, you had to send them off to the hospital to get uh, medicated or, you know, to tell them, no, what you're feeling is not right. And... Um, I'm off work at the moment because they've done that to me, right? Um, and, well, I can't say that, but, like, yes, I can say that. Like, I am off work because my system did not support me, but yet they're all about child youth advocacy and everything else, support the child, support this one, do this, inclusion. They don't include their own. And uh, so I'm off work. And, I mean, I don't need to get into the backstory of everything that's happened since then. But uh, all I can say is I'm a warrior that I'm still alive. Only for the grace of God, I would not be. Because everything I reached out to in this province failed me. And that's probably why that little boy is not here right now as well. So I really got a major issue with him. Yeah, and I sort of recall the circumstances surrounding his death but of course there's many other stories because the parents or the friends or the family don't speak out about it or make a public issue of it then we don't really know what goes on well let me rephrase that i don't know exactly what goes on in all these different circumstances i know that we've got some pretty significant shortcomings in the world of access to treatment in this province whether it be the amount of time you have to wait for it whether it be the amount of time that you're actually in a rehab facility versus what is really actually required for you to get clean. So I think there's a lot of different issues to that. I know of stories where people had no choice but to get their their rehab elsewhere. 
because of the amount of time that they needed to get clean because they'd been in and out out of 30 days and they had to wait so long. Like, I mean, who has X amount of time to wait, weeks or months to wait to get help when today's the day they decided that, you know what, this is it, I do need help. So we've got a long way to go here with addiction services. We do, and I don't know anything about this little boy's story either. It was just a bit of a trigger for me when I yeah. seen it the other day, and I'm like, and I'm like, I, I, I'm not down that road. But the thing is, my liver could fail just as quick as somebody could take a shot of fentanyl by accident. They're no different than me. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So my experience, if you're interested in, in like a minute or two, because I'm a bit long-winded, Go ahead. is that I like went through hell and back, kind of, my boyfriend died, I was like devastated, I was drinking heavy, I went to Pleasantville, I went there, so I went there for three days, and ultimately, I thought I was going to get some form of help, but you know what they offered me, a B12 shot in the arm, and clonazepam and food. Not one Al-Anon meeting, not an AA meeting, not a, anything. And then they came in knocking on the door and asking, oh, why are you sleeping so much? What do you want me to do? Type deal. I can't even have a cigarette. I'm on a nicotine patch. Like, come off it. If you're trying to get somebody off alcohol or anything, let them have a cigarette. They're driving them out of there as quick as they get them in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, now, just because I know how the listening public reacts to some of these conversations, and here's what basically I hear from some corners that, you know, people have brought upon this, these woes upon themselves. You know, they, they either started and began to drink too much or they started and began to take too much drugs. But at the exact same time, folks who are willing to say, well, too bad, it's your own problem, are the same people worried about crime, same people worried about mm. the cost of deliver health care in the country mm. uh, and certainly in the province because they're all fairly related, not all directly. Not everyone who has an addiction is going to break into Marie's. They're not going to bust in your house, but some will. And so if we know it's a problem, well, and it absolutely guidance is. Counselor. I'm a school guidance counselor. Okay. I'm not going to break into anybody's house. I won't kill an insect. I'm looking for help. And my own school board and my own province has not been able to provide that for me. I can't even get through to my doctor on the phone because he's overworked. And he's an angel. But, like, you cannot get through. I'm looking to get into rehab. I, I, I really am. Like, I've lost everything. I have nothing left. I want this gone so I can move on and help other people. But I can't even, I don't even know who to contact to get in. You know, there's. I can, tr- I can try to help you navigate here. Just let me bring something up. It's all so sad. Uh, it is very sad. Okay. Well, thank God, like I was graced with, I don't know, something, uh, uh, something to get me through this. But not everybody is. Let me give you and a number. That's what worries me, right? Let me see if I can help. So I want you to call a, a man named Barry Hewitt. And he's the mental health and addiction systems navigator. He's been very helpful to a lot of people. I have uh, his direct phone number if you'd like to take it. Sure. I got to get a pen and a Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It'll only take me one second. That's okay. Go ahead and get it. I'm here. I got it. Okay. So his name is Barry Hewitt. Yeah. And his telephone number, of course, is area code 709. 
752 3916 3916 369 interesting so it's uh, 709-752-3916 I've got it though okay. I've got it give that a try uh, and let me can know you, I will do that but can you make a final like uh, uh, I would like uh, like if you don't mind like do you have a final like statement on this like uh, this, like, uh, do you agree that this is like a humongous major problem if somebody who is a really good person and who's not breaking in your doors and who's not, who doesn't have a criminal record, who is a school guide, I don't care if I'm a cop, I don't care what I am, and who is looking for help and cannot get it, that it's not a problem in this province? It is a problem. Uh, I don't know how frequently you, you listen to this, but I, I know I it's absolutely, and that's okay, uh, it's absolutely sure. a problem. It's only getting worse. And, mm. you know, we've all... And I wasn't trying to imply that everyone who has a, an, an, an addiction is going to be a criminal, because I know that's not true. No, I understand So that. it is a problem, and it's growing. Mm. And the issue, whether it be with the numbers or the dangerous synthetic drugs that are making people zombies, or whether it be criminal justice issue or a health-related matter, addiction services are not where they need to be in the province. We know we've got a long-standing issue with uh, alcohol in this province, for instance. So... I, I don't know how to make a final statement necessarily, but I do know that the problem is there and the problem is growing. But addiction treatments, services, options, and timelines are not where they need to be, period. Well, I agree. Thank you for now, validation. Brenda, look, I just hope that you get what you need. And if Mr. Hewitt can be well, of assistance. I've got, I've got his number there. I will definitely be in contact with him. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I, I don't know why I need to call today. I have no idea. I don't listen that often. But I just had to. And, it, you know, thank you. That's all I can say. And hopefully we can, like, start making this better. I mean, we can't save the world in one day but we can certainly try that we can and we all owe it to everybody because the these issues have impacts on society in general it's not just the individual it's not just their families it actually has a community-wide impact so you take that opportunity to give mr hewitt a call Get back in touch with me. Let me know if you've had any luck and how things are going. If you ever want to come mm -hmm. on the show again or talk offline, if I have time, I'm happy to try that as well. So I wish you good luck, Brenda. Thank you, doll. I really appreciate it. You have a great day. You too. All okay, the best. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, can Chris wait uh, through the news? That would be great because I don't want to give him just a couple of minutes when he may have a few things to discuss. All right, and I also told this lady I would get this out there for her. Uh, wrong note, wrong note. So let's see here. All right, uh, sometimes, and sometimes we have some uh, luck when we try to help people find an item or be reunited with a pet. And this is for this lady. She is in what area? Uh, i got to open up the poster. Boys, oh boys, I'm pretty slow here today. Layla. Layla is a, by the look of it, a little German shepherd. So Layla's been missing on Topsail Road since August the 11th, last seen Friday around the overpass. So she's a bit skittish. Don't approach or give her a chase, but looks to be a little German shepherd, I think. And uh, if that's wrong, Renee, you get back in touch with me. But if you see this particular dog scooting around looking lost, 746 7733. Let's take a break. When we come back, Chris, I appreciate your patience. He's out in paradise, wants to tell us about what's happening in his community. Don't go away.
Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Excellent. How, how you doing? Uh, good and bad. Well, I, I'm, I'm just pulling off the side of the road here now. But I uh, just just wanted to bring uh, bring it out to, to the attention of the public. Uh, I'm, I'm living in paradise, and yesterday at lunchtime, went home, and I popped into my house for, <laughs> actually, it was about eight minutes from the time I went in to the time I came out. And I stupidly left my keys in my car, but when I came out, my vehicle was gone at 11.30 in the morning. Uh, a couple of neighbors saw an individual walk in and out of my driveway, and well, they, he saw them, so he left and then came back, and, and, and then he eventually took the truck and off he went. So I called the police, and of course, they're doing what they can, and, and obviously, there's a, a lot of vehicles uh, been stolen uh, daily uh, around the island, I guess, and everywhere else. But uh, I did a little bit of searching myself on the street, looking for you know some of the neighbors with their cameras and that sort of stuff. And I did uh, get a, uh, one picture yet, and I'm waiting for a couple of more neighbors to get back to me with some videos that they may have. But I did knock on the door this morning, and, and uh, mine was yesterday at lunchtime. And I knocked on another door this morning, and, the, and people came to the door, and, and I asked them if they had a camera. And they said, no, boy, but, God, I, I was hoping that you were coming to give us some information on our quad that was stolen last night. So they, they went into the side of their house behind a couple of other vehicles and wheeled a, a, a quad out over the neighbor's lawn and obviously didn't start it but loaded aboard something and went off with it. And it, that was a Raptor. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what color or anything like that, but it was a, a four-wheel drive quad. And my truck was a, a Chev Silverado blue-gray single cab, just a regular two-wheel drive. Uh, just and, and the only reason I'm calling, I know that you know Patty Bailey can't get out and look for it, but no. the only reason I'm calling is that uh, you know somebody's neighbor came home today or yesterday with a new truck that they didn't own before or uh, a quad this morning that they didn't own. Maybe you know somebody could ask a question or, or you know put it out there and give us all a little bit of help. Well, absolutely. And, I mean, people will recognize quite clearly whether or not there's a new rig parked in the driveway that wasn't there yesterday. It's not to insinuate that someone might not have bought a new Raptor or bought a new Chev or Silverado. But but you, you never know. And, you know, even inside our own neighborhoods, you know, I know people sometimes they simply don't want to get involved. They don't want to put themselves in potentially dangerous situations when they see someone lurking around and casing the joint or going into your shed or your backyard. But if we just had a, not even official neighborhood watches, but just keeping an eye out for each other's stuff, because it might be your neighbor that keeps an eye out for your stuff and saves you from getting robbed. And that's everything from your quad to your truck to even like parcels on the doorstep. That's the one that gets me, is all the porch pirates. You know full well, you recognize your neighbors. And so when you see a package dropped off, not to say you got to stand in the window all day long they come home from work, but keeping an eye out and just maybe making a roar across the road. So what are you doing? And off they go because we all play a little bit of a role because the cops aren't going to be everywhere all the time. So keeping an eye out in the neighborhood is pretty important stuff. Yeah, they can't be everywhere. And uh, and as you mentioned about the packages, as I knocked on, on the doors uh, on my street yesterday, there was three packages on different three different households. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's all out there. And, and uh, But like I said, I just wanted to mention this 
you know, and absolutely, uh, you know, a lot of people are behind vehicles and, and, and quads and that sort of stuff. And I'm not saying that everybody who went home with one yesterday sold it, but <laughs> if... Uh, but they might have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there are a lot stolen. But I just wanted to bring it uh, out there, Patty, and, and with the hope that, you know, maybe somebody might know something or see something and even call anonymously to the police or, you know, to, to wherever, just to, to get it out there. And if you don't want to be implicated here or get uh, intimately involved, you can make anonymous tips at Crime Stoppers. There's lots of ways to do it. Absolutely. Always an anonymous call. No yep. problem with that. Yeah. I appreciate the time this morning, Chris. Thanks a lot. No problem, Patty. Thank you for yours. My pleasure. Take care. Okay. Right, bye-bye. And, and, you know, I maybe we're lucky. We live in a neighborhood where we do indeed have a variety of people that keep an eye on things in the hood. Some people might refer to some folks like that as uh, being the busybodies and that kind of stuff. But, hey, I got no problem. If you recognize the fact that people that you do not recognize as being part of the neighborhood are lurking around in the park and peering over the fences and going through the gates or walking in the driveway, just knowing that there's someone looking out for yourself is not a bad thing. Now, I'm not expecting any of my neighbors to go out and encounter someone who they find or deem to be suspicious, but yeah, just never know. And that one about the packages, that really gets under my skin because we were the victims of a porch pirate is there's lots of good ideas out there. Whether it is you get the package sent to your office, for instance. So it will be delivered and the receptionist or what have you will take your package as opposed to taking your chances because you never know when the package is going to be dropped off. You'll get an email alert or a text alert that the package is in hand with one courier or another. And if you're not home, and even if you are home, it simply looks to me, and correct me if I'm wrong to the couriers listening to the program this morning, it's put the package on the porch, knock or uh, knock on the door or ring the doorbell, and then just be on and conduct the rest of your business for the day. But some of the packages, it might be a $20 T-shirt, but it might be a $500 piece of electronics. So that's the one that gets under my skin. So maybe some of those good ideas that people have put forward, for instance, you know, having it sent to your office, which I think is becoming more common than not. There's also another specific type of package and delivery service that eludes me now that people are availing of because it protects their package from whoever might be willing to pinch it right off of your porch. And I think those uh, doorbell cameras, they're becoming super popular. Yeah, for good reason, right? Keeping an eye on what's going on is pretty fundamental stuff. And I don't think there's any neighborhood that is not the potential next target. It doesn't necessarily have to be if you live in what some people might call a sketchier part of town or a poorer part of town because they make their way and traipse through all kinds of neighborhoods and you know, protect the stuff that is in your vehicle. I don't really know what to do there. I guess the best advice or suggestions that we hear from folks who chime in on these issues is just try not to leave anything visible that's of any value. Now, the last time someone broke into my vehicle and there was nothing in there to take, they took a couple of CDs that they routed out from the uh, the compartment in between the seats and the bit of coffee money, which was somewhere in the neighborhood of $3, that was gone. But I don't even remember leaving the door open or unlocked. But, you know, there's also good advice out there that if you don't have anything that can be stolen, then don't even lock your door so that they don't possibly break your window, your your windshield and or your side window, whatever the case may be. And then we've heard reports coming from the Insurance Bureau of Canada about car theft. Is the FOBs, 
that you know for instance a lot of people that you simply don't need to put your key in any ignition slot you just press start and if the key is in close proximity to the car you can start it and apparently there's all these uh, ability for people to mimic your fob from outside your house like up against your door so where many people will have the habit of going into the house with your car keys and either put them on a key hook in the porch or in the little dish like many people do put it in the dish close by the door so it's there when you need it as opposed to always hunting for your car keys but apparently it was close enough to the door someone could replicate your key so there's lots of things to consider as we try to protect ourselves from the folks who are lurking around every corner trying to rob you blind all right let's take a break when we come back luke's in the queue he wants to talk about municipal enforcement services in central don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number two good morning luke you're on the air how you doing, Patty? Couldn't be better. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. There's a lot of conversation in regards to uh, the RCMP um, shortfalls. And of course, it's not just even in this province. It's uh, clear across Canada. Um, and it's not even just the RCMP. You know, we certainly are seeing it with uh, all levels of police. Um, and there's, there's definitely some um, pretty valid reasons for that. Um, and a lot of it certainly is... Uh, just to recruit shortfalls, the, the people are just not as interested. Um, you know, there's been, uh, over the last few years, uh, police officers have not necessarily always been held in a good light. Um, and I think that trend is maybe changing a touch now, um, understanding that we, we need more officers. Uh, there's a lot of different solutions on how we can uh, accommodate uh, uh, those shortfalls in smaller communities. Uh, community policing models have been in place for years and years and years, and mm-hmm. uh, all over Canada. Newfoundland certainly is one of them that's more prominent with the RCMP and uh, RNC being the provincial police, uh, but picking up uh, municipal policing duties, if you would, in St. John's, Cornerbrook, and, uh, um, and uh, bigger metropolitans uh, here, in the, here in the province. Um, a, a lot of outports, such as Fogo Island, of course, is in the news right now, um, and um, while their office is not going to close, it's, it's certainly going to have a, a reduction in the officers. Um, I don't think that's a really good strategy. It kind of points out that the provincial policing strategy, uh, like in other provinces, is not a foolproof strategy. Strategy. Um, well, I might kind of say that it doesn't work. It's it's not as effective as it as it maybe should be, or what we hope for. Um, so, what can we do as smaller communities? So, what we're doing over here at Municipal Enforcement Services, and it's a newer service that we've provided here, and it's been well and established in Ontario for since 1996. And it was actually formulated by four experienced uh, active police officers or law enforcement officers from different uh, venues. Um, what we've done is we brought it here, and the model basically is this. Uh, here they have the Municipalities Act, and uh, so any municipal government, which is about 275 here in the province, um, some very small, some of maybe of only 150 people, um, you know, upwards of uh, certainly 12,000, you know, uh, such as maybe in Central here we've got, you know, County Gander. Now they've availed from certainly one section in that, and there's only one section that talks about uh, town policing or municipal enforcement officers to handle low-level crime, um, uh, more importantly, a deterrent in their communities, um, but uh, which can include traffic services, which can include uh, animal and uh, um, animal care, so animal control officers, um, uh, toddy, toddy yards, um, whether it's traffic, ATV off-road vehicles, uh, and so on. It's a lot easier for places sound like the size of Gander, for instance, to avail of those services. They have a tax base that they can um, look at their finances and say we're going to delegate this certain amount to, to uh, towards uh, public safety um, to marriage up with maybe their fire services. Well, it's not a novel idea to regionalize some of these initiatives, um, but it's not widespread here in the province. What we're doing is we're, we're providing a platform 
with some information, free of, free of charge, just to come in and, and gather up uh, numerous communities all at one time to give them some information on how they could get started with a regionalized municipal enforcement program, which makes it a lot more cost effective, and it puts what all communities are, are going to need. And, and again, for a while, and we're looking at it from that standpoint to say, but what's the most important thing about policing? Well, policing, for the most part, is, is presence. Presence deters, right? And we were just talking with one of your colleagues there who has had certainly some vehicle break-ins, and, and certainly a lot of communities are facing that now. And that seems to be an uptick with that, seeing with uh, you know, serious crimes. The idea is that we need a presence. So if you've got small, outpour communities that are availing from provincial police services, for instance, such as RCMP, and they're saying, we're lucky if we see an RCMP officer come to the community, and we're lucky to see him maybe in here for 20 minutes over a 24-hour period. But they've got a huge area of responsibility, and if they've got officers that are off or if they've had to reposition the officers, uh, their, their strategy maybe needs to change um, due to staffing uh, situations, that can leave those communities uh, without seeing an officer maybe for even days. Um, and sometimes it's, it's more of a reactive. You, you only see that officer come in when there's a call for service. Now, municipal enforcement officers cannot replace an RCMP officer or an RC, RNC officer uh, to, to the totality of, of criminal uh, offenses because that's not what they're tasked with. Um, they're not sworn police officers. What they are is they're appointed uh, policing officers or municipal enforcement officers. And so, again, low-level crime is what they take care of. Um, but, again, it's that deterrent. Now, that doesn't say that they can't uh, apprehend a person who's climbing out of a, a, a school window at uh, you know midnight uh, with a, a laptop in hand per se, um, they, they can certainly intervene if, uh, uh, certainly if their safety and what have you, uh, and their level of training um, certainly avails from that. But the idea is that we want to be able to put more emphasis on saying that the municipal, the municipal government level, they can do more for their communities. It's difficult for some to do it on their own because they just don't have the tax base to pull from on that. Um, however, on, on a regionalized approach, such as bringing maybe five, six, seven, even eight communities together, like they do for fire services or garbage collection, for instance, as an example, to say that while the regionalization project that, or, or the projection of what they wanted here in the province may have fallen as a failure as to some, it, it doesn't mean that they can't regionalize independently. And the province certainly has been stating that to them, to say, go forward and do that. There may even be, uh, there may have even some whispers that there could be some funding av available uh, to communities that have shown that they can regionalize certain services. And when they're successful, they may end up getting some funding out of that coming forward. Again, the Municipal uh, Municipalities Act, while it's, it's quite outdated, um, it does work, it does avail, it does give uh, municipalities some uh, power to, uh, to provide protection in their communities uh, on, a, on a law standpoint. Um, again, regulations, they, 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 create, uh, they create a safer and more accountable and respectable communities. Um, and so they're important. We have a lot of communities that don't even have regulations. Um, so like I say, our service, we come in, we get them together, and that's the primary thing to say, hey, there's a realization here, this is doable, and um, this is something that we can certainly achieve. Um, and if you need help with regulations, this is where we can step in and do some consulting, help them with that. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of time. Government moves quite slowly, we understand that. Um, there's things that have to be done and put in front of councils to get things in place. Um, but like I said, you've got to start somewhere. Um, and right now we're working with 
um, definitively nine different communities. Uh, we're getting ready to go into a uh, um, information session, a regionalized uh, um, information session with uh, those uh, community members here in Central. And so we're, we're excited about that, and, and I think they are too, there's no doubt. Um, and we're going to start here, and we're going to keep uh, working our way across. But I think that, you know, we have been doing it for years traveling up the ladder to, to complain about needing more on a provincial level uh, for policing such as RNC or RCMP but we're seeing that that seems to be going backwards we're actually losing that battle so do we just put our hands up and say well I guess we can't do anything or do we do something a little bit more proactive and uh, I, uh, we certainly know this is a solution uh, that can definitely work it's been tried tested and proven quite frankly uh, uh, really well in Ontario and uh, like I said it's 96 uh, those four gentlemen that started it uh, they understood they, they, they were part of provincial policing models when they just said we know that we can't provide the lower level policing and we know it's not enough but presence is everything um, it, it really is and again if those officers see something that's you know, extremely dangerous or, you know, a serious criminal offense, they're also excellent uh, witnesses and can maintain continuity of that information uh, until an officer can arrive. Uh, they can uh, provide assistance to that officer. And, and again, it's, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's even becoming more dangerous for RCMP officers when they, they don't have backup, you know, and, and so that's another part of it too. So, uh, like I said, we just want to want to get on the air and just let everybody know that there is a solution out there. Um, and if they wanted more information from, from our service, they can reach out to us. Uh, we've got an email address. Uh, it's just mesconsulting.pm.me. And uh, all uppercase lettering for MES Consulting. And, and like I said, we can assist. And it doesn't cost anything just to get the information out there. Let them know how you can actually get this together uh, and put it in place uh, and get a starting point. And then from there, like I said, they can hire uh, responsible and well-trained officers to put into their communities. They can cover the interests of, you know, up to maybe eight, eight communities. It just really depends on how they want to roll that out. But it is possible, right? So they don't have to stand by and just and say, well, we're at the mercy of uh, the provincial policing model. Uh, there's, there's more to be done. But those officers can also assist those uh, RCMP, for instance, on uh, taking care of those low-level crime calls and taking them off their plate so they can maybe focus a little bit more on the high crime um, initiatives. There's best practices out there. I mean, communities right around where I live. Mount Pearl has pretty efficient bylaw enforcement officers. Portugal Cove St. Phillips introducing it. So if we're worried that, like for instance on Fogo, if there might be an uptick in speeders, drunk drivers and the like, well, some of the training afforded to the folks who are going to be those officers in Portugal Cove St. Phillips, they'll be able to deal with those matters. So it's an important point that you're making that we're not talking about replacing traditional police presence or services. We're talking about complementing it because if they don't have the resources to deal with whatever community or whatever region, then adding to the pie, which is the same thing I would suggest with speed cameras and doorbell cams and neighborhood watch and in by law enforcement officers on the municipal level because every different layer Ends up, ends up moving towards the very similar, if not the same goal. We're trying to keep things, keep the peace, uh, identify crime, report crime, help investigate crime, be witnesses or otherwise. So I think you're right. And shrugging our shoulders, say there's nothing we can do, is probably the worst thing we can do. And now I'm not suggesting that municipalities that are, you know, have a concern with police presence are doing that. But maybe without the info and or the understanding of best practices, how it works elsewhere, a cost associated with, without that info in hand, it's probably very difficult to come up with a new plan, to come up with a complementary plan. 
that's correct. Yeah, and, and that's what we're trying to do is just implement that idea. And so here's a starting strategy, and we know this works. It's uh, it's, it's it's achievable. It very much is achievable. When you're looking at a cost uh, association with something that's a regionalized uh, missile enforcement plan, for instance, I mean you're looking at maybe uh, you know eleven dollars per person if you're looking at it per capita. If that's the way you wanted to build that out, certainly the bigger municipality would pay more of that uh, um, you know that uh, fund. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's like I say, it's it's a presence that you want, right? Uh, and again, we're we're here to complement you know the the missing element to some degree and the present element of say RCMP, and we'll use those as the example. Um, and like I said, then they're going to be very welcome to that idea, especially if those officers are well-trained officers and uh, training is upkept. And that's certainly something else we do. And primarily what we do is we train peace officers. So uh, we have got uh, you know some of the most uh, modern and robust uh, training programs uh, available. And like I said, we've got partners uh, in three different provinces at this time. And, and so like I said, we're, we're pretty excited about that. And moving into Newfoundland, it was just a, uh, it was a niche for us, certainly, uh, for the training aspect of it. But we've seen it more, say, while you don't have townships and counties and so on and so forth, and while that may not come to fruition, uh, for understandable reasons, I think, but uh, it, it really certainly behooves uh, certainly these uh, leaders of the small municipalities to get together, to work as a team, and to say, well, we can do it with fire services. We certainly can do it with municipal enforcement services. And, and again, that presence, uh, while it may not be a full-fledged uh, sworn police officer, um, they are, you know, uh, performing policing duties just the same, um, which is just as much risk, uh, nevertheless, and this is why we want them to be fully trained. Um, and certainly the police college is certainly putting out fine officers that are filling those roles, and uh, we want to continue to do that. So while maybe the policing model is is failing to some degree, we can say, okay, well, we can we can fill that void there. And maybe it'll get better in time, but if it doesn't, at least we're doing something about it today. And uh, like I said, that deterrent, you know, if you're seeing an officer roll around, um, like I said, it, it's a lot less likely that people are going to want to engage in uh, criminal activity um, at, at, at that standpoint. So, 100%. Give us your email address one more time, Luke. Yeah, sure. It's all uppercase M-E-S consulting uh, at uh, PM dot ME and, and lowercase there, PM dot ME. And again, like I said, it's uh, officer training and uh, like I say, even for frontline staff, if you're a clerk or something of this nature, we're officering situation, we're owners training, de-escalation training, um, and disengagement training is also some of the offshoots that we do as well, which is very, very important, right? We want to make sure those officers are out there with the tools that have been given to do their job, that they're up to date and, uh, you know, and, and uh, like I said, uh, accountable with, uh, with their approaches. So, Do you deal directly with municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador by chance? We were, we're, we're branching into that. We're, we're making contacts. It's relatively new. We came in 2021, late 2021, doing officer training, which was uh, very successful. We've been taking our time to really kind of understand and try to make connections and uh, um, with um, some government officials as well, just to say that we understand there's really no standardization for these officers as well. Very little, actually. You can put a, uh, you can put a, uh, a municipally appointed officer who has peace officer status as basically all the common law levels uh, um, the power of, a, of an RNC officer um, within their scope of practice or within their duties um, while you know enforcing any of the municipal legislation uh, but like I say it's it's um, we, we took our time coming into that and so now we've made some connections and we've uh, we've vetted a lot of information because some of the laws here are a little bit different certainly from what we're used to and um, so like I said we're really excited um, about making some of those uh, those connections that we have made um, and so we're, we're continuing to make those connections right now um, while we're in the uh, preliminary phases of just uh, getting out to our really our first regionalized meeting which we're hoping to vet here in the next 
uh, next three weeks or so, and probably uh, mid-September um, for the first uh, round. And so, like I said, we're already working on the second, uh, the second, uh, you know, area. Um, so, like I said, we're pretty excited about that. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Lou. Keep us in the loop. Yeah, not a problem. You take good care, and uh, thanks for doing what you do. Pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Bye, Luke. Uh, add to it, you know, sometimes numbers can be misleading. So we'll be told there's X number of RCMP officers in the province, or there's X number of RNC officers. But even when you speak directly with any member of either force, they'll also add to it that the number might not be directly reflective of just how many police are available today. With the numbers of police officers who inevitably will be on vacation, the people who were on extended leave, and apparently that number's pretty high. So they might still be technically on the force, on the payroll, but possibly not available for work. So they're stretched pretty thin is the information being shared with me by both members of the RCMP and the RNC. All right, uh, while we take a break for the newscast, here's the numbers for your consideration to join us live on the program to help us wrap it up this morning. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. I just want to bring up about this, whatever it is on the trees this year. Uh, you had a call a couple of weeks ago, and you was going to look into it. So I was just wondering. I haven't heard nothing. Yeah, we did. We actually had an arborist, uh, a botanist, on the show to talk about it. His name is Todd Boland. He's the head uh, horticulturist, I guess, at Mons Botanical Gardens. And what he told us is that this is what they call a tent caterpillar web. And so inside those webs would be these tent caterpillars. No real long-term problem for the trees. They'll turn some leaves uh, brown or black, but this is an annual issue. It might be worse this year in many regions. I haven't seen it up close and personal, but I've seen an awful lot of photographs with it, and it's pretty intense looking. Yeah, it was very bad, like, uh, especially where we have our cabin too. It's very bad there. Seems like they're on the harders more. And where's your cabin? Uh, in central in central okay yeah and we've heard lots of people from the central region talking about what they're seeing and the pictures are really quite gross i don't think i've ever seen it personally and i certainly haven't seen it anywhere around my my neck of the woods here on the east coast yeah it's really bad you know in certain places there in the central right on side roads yeah yeah, so I don't know if it was the same day, but it was certainly no longer than the next day we had Mr. Bolin on to describe exactly what it is, what the problems it might or might not be for the trees. But uh, And he says it's an annual thing, but it may indeed be worse in certain parts of the province this year. That's as much as we were able to figure out. Okay, God, I never got, I never heard that, guys. Too bad, all the same. No problem. So if we can figure out what day it was on, which I'm sure Dave can, and I'll say it before we run out of time here this morning, uh, you can just go back to our website and re-listen to the show. Yeah. Okay, I will do that. Okay, what we're going to do, Dave says, I'm going to put you on hold. He'll give you the date. You can find that show right on our website at vocm.com and give it a listen. Okay, thank you. I'll listen to your, your program whenever I can because I'm a walker. I appreciate you making time for the show. I'm going to put you on hold. You'll say hello to David here now, okay? Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. 
uh, yeah, we did get Mr. Bolton on to talk about it. And look, I do appreciate when people send me pictures. It's much easier to talk about something when you've had a look at it. I haven't seen those webs around here, but there are certainly plenty of them, and some of them are absolutely huge. Uh, let's go to line number one. Renee, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm uh, camping, actually, up in Gooby's North. And my main coon got out last night, and we've been looking for him ever since. But I just wanted to put it out there on the air if anybody sees him. Um, uh, to give him my phone number and some information. Sure. Uh, your, I'm sorry, you said your what got out? Uh, Maine Coon. It's a type of cat. Oh, I see. I had no idea what you, what, what you said. Uh, Maine Coon. What type of cat is that? Um. Uh, it's a big one. <laughs> a big one, okay. He's probably, he's probably 25 pounds, 30 pounds. Wow, and is it an outdoor cat? No, he's not. He's an indoor cat, and we live in the Gould, so he's not familiar with this area either. Okay, so as usual, I should always remind people to, you know, also take advantage of some of the social media platforms that people have a great success with lost and found items, in particular pets. So you can try that as well as give the information out here. So describe this massive cat for us, Beyond the Pounds. His, uh, his color is called um, black, um, uh, black smoke. So he's, he's black really black and he has green eyes but he has a gray chest he has a mane a, a big mane on his chest he looks like lionish um big gray mane and he's not very approachable but if anyone could uh, see them they can contact me at 693-3997 3997. So that's 693-3997. Just for my own curiosity during the break, how do you spell the uh, type of cat that you have? M-A-I-N-E-C-O-O-N. M-A-I-N-E-C-O. Okay, Maine Coon. There you go. I'll have a look at a few yep. pictures during the break. Okay, so if you see this particularly large, green-eyed black cat with a pretty prominent mane on the chest, please give Renee a call. It's an indoor cat, so and unfamiliar with the surroundings as they camp out. And you said Gooby South? Gooby's North. Gooby's North. Well, I don't want to put people in the wrong direction. 693-3997. Good luck. Let me know if uh, you get... What's the cat's name, sorry? Leo. Leo. Let me know if you get Leo, the lion-looking cat, back. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Renee. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, interesting-looking animal. Oh, man. Some of these cats are huge. You know, and I asked the indoor-outdoor, because obviously that makes a difference for the ability for the cat to thrive, survive outdoors. I don't know what it's like in your neighborhood, but I thank our lucky stars that in our neighborhood, we've got a couple or a few outdoor cats you know, for me, as a faithful listener to the program, you know, the concern I have with rodents, and in particular, the rat population, you know full well, and knock on wood, that those particular outdoor cats are doing yeoman service for our neighborhood. And yes, man, oh man, look at some of these Maine Coon cats. They're huge. All right, David, did you want to tell me something before we go to the break? Okay, we, David tells me we have time for one more, so maybe you'd like to be that one more. 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the program. If Antonia is listening, I did try to reply to your email requiring the disability benefits information that we've been sharing a lot in the last uh, number of days, but it came back as undeliverable. So if you're listening, Antonia, send me another email. Maybe if you have another email address so that I can get that information to you. It's remarkable just how many people have reached out to myself or to David looking for that disability information. It was a particularly informative call with Fraser Pickett one day last week that so many people are unaware of some of the uh, available services and or tax credits for disabilities. So after his call, I can only tell you that there's been somewhere in the neighborhood, oh, I'm going to say it's certainly easily 100 people that have emailed us. And we've tried to reply to each and every one. So again, if you haven't heard back from me, but you've been looking for that information, try me again, and I will continue to sift through the email inbox, which is really quite busy, and get back to everybody. But Mr. Pickett was given us information based on the estimated number of Canadians who would be technically eligible for some of these additional supports, tax credits and otherwise, that because they don't know then they haven't uh, applied for them and consequently leaving a ton of money on the table. So in addition to the Canada.ca list of benefits including disability, there's also a disability calculator that we've been sharing while we share the link to the federal government programs. And it's really basic. You just uh, put in some very base information, no real privacy concerns. You're not sharing any personal numbers like your SIN or anything like that. You just put in all the information required and requested and it's pretty anonymous. So, and then we'll give you a very quick uh, tally, and you pop the button, and up comes the, the amount of money that you might be eligible for. So, if you or someone belong to you uh, has a disability and has gone through the appropriate medical channels to document disability so that you can get a variety of government services, make sure that you take advantage of this. Because it's just in the very recent past that the Disability uh, Act received royal assent, which comes with some additional information that people maybe just maybe don't have in front of them or unaware of it. Because in the summertime, I get it, is that some people kind of take their eye off what can be an overwhelming news cycle and consequently maybe didn't see it. But there are some additional pieces of information out there on that front that if you want me to try to help share it with you i'm happy to do exactly that one of the stories that i'm a little bit surprised today didn't get any uh, action on the air got a couple of emails about it is the fact that the court of appeal has refused to hear a covid related travel case Harken back to May of 2020 and the lady from Nova Scotia, her name is Kim Taylor. I'm pretty sure I spoke with Kim Taylor on this program as she made her case understood. The issue was when they amended Bill 38, that's the Public Health Protection Promotion Act, it put all sorts of travel restrictions in place. Consequently, Miss Taylor was unable to travel to this province for her mother's funeral. And of course, it's all bad enough when you lose a loved one, but to be told that based on a piece of public health legislation, you couldn't come home for the funeral? Devastating. So she took it to court, and understandably so. Initially, the ruling came from then-presiding justice, that was Donald Burge, said the ban did infringe on Section 6 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but the Section 1, which allows for reasonable exemptions to the Charter, which is something that gets lost in all of the constitutional uh, conversations, is that there are exemptions and opportunities for different sections to be applied based on section one which says reasonable exemptions to charter provisions so that ruling was brought down 
and then they were going to extend it and ask the Court of Appeal to uh, have a second look at it, and the Court of Appeal has chosen not to take it on. The reasons offered are what I will call interesting. So what the Court of Appeal had said is that because the special measures the special measures order was no longer in place. It was removed in February 2022, and because of that, that they didn't see the cause or the need to take on this case. They said the issue was moot. But I think that we're going to see not only these types of cases, but people questioning, you know, a review, a post-mortem of exactly how the pandemic was handled, provincially and federally, because even if things aren't still in place, and whether that be vaccine mandates or travel restrictions, all those types of things, you know, even if it's in an effort that if and when anything like this happens again, if we have actual judicial rulings on what could and should be done, and there's some confusion about a story that came out of British Columbia about, uh, was it Alberta? Alberta, about the public protection measures, public health measures. And it's being characterized as being told that some of these quasi or quote-unquote lockdowns were illegal, unconstitutional. What the ruling said is if you want to read the stories and dig a little deeper than headlines is that they were perfectly fine coming from the chief medical officer of health in this case Adina Hinshaw as opposed to the assertion that the decisions were made at the political level so that's what the, that ruling said is that not that it was illegal but these rulings have to be independent from the political machine now is there any legitimate way to understand what role politics has played in any of these types of public health uh, pardon me related decisions i don't know i mean <laughs> You know, and some of the politicians really didn't do themselves any favors on this front because when we were getting, and at one point it became completely overwhelming to have daily updates and the numbers are coming at you. And consequently, when it's that rapid fire deluge of information, of course, people kind of stressed people out. But, you know, every now and then it might have been appropriate for one premier or another, one minister of health or another to make an appearance. You know, because there's some operational concerns that also have to be part and parcel with numbers. But when it became a feature, not an exemption, it was the rule. Premiers got involved way too much. In certain provinces, different level of participation in these news briefings versus others. But when you see the political presence in so many of these news conferences, people will understandably think there's political influence in all of these decisions. It's hard to argue against it because the politicians purposefully sat themselves alongside chief medical officers of health, and the rest is, as they say, history. Can history be revisited, even if it's an effort to learn lessons, even if it's in an effort to apply you know, uh, a careful lens through the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms and potential judicial rulings about what we could and should and should not be doing? Because I don't know what the future holds. I don't have a crystal ball. I hear a lot of people telling me exactly what's coming next and all of these planned episodes. But if anything like this does happen again, it'd be nice to have all of a sudden what we call a textbook or a playbook and what can should be allowed versus what should not ever be even considered, let alone implemented. So I don't know where those legal thresholds lie. But if the likelihood to say in my lifetime is something like this rolls around again, It'd be nice to have a better idea of where we are, how we approach it. And uh, I, look, I, hopefully I won't be in this chair when, that, if, when and if it ever comes around again. But going back to look at what the social scientists said about societal cohesion and the potential for division, they had it figured out. Uh, sure. Uh, they had it figured out.
They painted a very clear picture of what they thought would happen with a variety of issues that would be implemented, whether it be long-term care visitation and or being able to attend a funeral and the ability to move freely around the country and issues regarding masking and physical distancing and vaccinations and everything else. They said it. Here's what you can anticipate. Here's what you can expect. And to a man and to a woman, they were right. They were 100% right. And Dave's asked me to give out the disability information. It's not quite as simple as saying, here's what you have to do to find the information. If you want to take it on yourself and send me an email, I'll send you the links that I have. But it's pretty basic if you're using a computer to, uh, to find these things. If you simply go to your search bar and say, Disability Benefits Canada, You'll come, the first uh, thing you find will be just Canada.ca with all of the appropriate information there. And that includes child disability payment, education funding for people with disabilities, registered disability savings plan, the CPP disability benefits, and on and on it goes. So it'll have a full list and they all have their own click. Disabilities for veterans and others are on that page. So you can get it there. And then the other one that I mentioned is the calculator. If you type in your search bar one more time, disability benefits Canada calculator, the very top of that search find will bring it to a very fundamental easy to use calculator that doesn't ask for any personal information just ask for circumstance you put it in it tallies it up and bob's your uncle all right final check on the twitter feed we're vocm open line follow us there email address is open line at vocm.com and my favorite is when we speak to you live on the program to talk about whatever's on your mind and we will pick up this conversation tomorrow morning right here on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.